This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves May 16th in ebook, audiobook, and hardcover. It is available for pre order right now. My guests today, Don Bentley and Alan Mack. Don spent 10 years in the U.S. Army as an Apache helicopter pilot, then moved over to the FBI. He is the author of the Matt Drake thriller series, the latest of which, Forgotten War, comes out on April 25th. He is also the author of a series of Tom Clancy novels and has taken the reins to write the next Vince Flynn thriller following Kyle Mills' last Vince Flynn novel that will come out here in September. Alan Mack spent 35 years in the United States Army. CW05 was involved in the initial invasion of Afghanistan, Red Wings, the search for Bo Bergdahl, has a so much experience uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan in Army Special Operations Aviation. Incredible guy. He is also the author of Razor 03, so be sure and pick that up. And now, without further ado, Don Bentley and Alan Mack. Man, thank you guys for taking the time. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having us. Of course. Yeah, definitely. Of course. Here we go. And got the book right here. Got Razor 03. Amazing. Oh, my gosh. I went through this. I'm like, how could one guy have been involved in, like, every single – it's like the Forrest Gump of the 160th. Um, That's what I say. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's absolutely incredible. And then, Don, man, I don't know how you're knocking out so many books, um, but I want to ask you about that. And also yeah. say congratulations on – Mitch Rapp taking over the series after Kyle Mills finishes up um, in uh, September. The last Kyle Mills uh, yep. Mitch Rapp book will come out and you are taking the reins. Um, yeah. How did that come about? What, what was that, uh, that process like? Man, it was crazy. I, I'm, so Vince Flynn has been, I think a, a lot of us would say, probably our biggest influence that writes in this genre just mm -hmm. because he was the first guy to have the no kidding post 9-11, I'm going to take the fight to the enemy and shoot bad guys in the face protagonist. And I think, you know, Brad Thor was right there with him, but the two of them really, I think, kicked open this genre for the rest of us. And I think like all the Vince Flynn fans, I was really nervous when Kyle took over. I'd read some of his books. I knew he was a great writer, but I thought, you know, Vince was a once in a generation talent. How is he going to do it? And I loved what Kyle did with yeah. the with the character. And so I, I didn't know your your uh, editors, Emily Bessler, too. I didn't know her. I know I knew of her, obviously. But when I got the first Kyle book, I just wrote her a note and I said, hey, I'm a huge fan and I love what he did and specifically this scene. And so I would do that every couple of books when I found a place where I thought Kyle just perfectly captured Mitch Rapp the way that that uh vince would have I, I would send her a note or drop her a line or something and then as we were as you know navigating publishing is a tricky thing and we were coming down to the fact where um, we were trying to figure out was i going to do more matt drake books was i going to do a standalone was i going to do a clancy one and you know i was just honestly i was praying at the time and thinking man if there is one series 
that I would love to write, it would be the Vince Flynn series, but I don't think Kyle's ever going anywhere. And as, as I was praying about that and trying to figure out what to do, I really felt like, you know what, maybe I should talk to Emily about it. And so I didn't want it to come off as disingenuous because she and I had, ex- had, had um, exchanged emails on, on um, Kyle's books. And so I talked to my agent about it and he said, well, let me talk to her. And just so happened that Kyle had decided that he was uh, writing his last book and they were looking for a new guy. And so it was, it was a long process after that. I got to talk to Vince's agent, Sloan Harris, a couple of times and kind of audition a little bit. And it was pretty fascinating, honestly, talking to him because he is so, he's so protective over Vince Flynn's memory and legacy. And you, you just talk on the phone and you could hear how much that guy genuinely cared for Vince. And then, you know, auditioning for it honestly felt a lot like being invited to come join the family company. It was like, mm-hmm. here's this small business. There's only been a few employees and we want you to come in and, and see what you can do here. So it's really been a pretty amazing experience. Jeez. I mean, and you're coming off doing the Clancy stuff. So you, so Tom Colgan is your editor on those, the yep. famous Tom Colgan. Shout out to Tom right there. Um, <laughs> but uh, how did that one work out? So how did this whole thing start for you? Because that's a pretty cool, you have your own yeah. standalone series. You're doing the yep. uh, the Tom Clancy series. And now you have yep. the Vince Flynn. You take the mantle uh, yep. on Vince Flynn's Mitch Rapp series. Like that's a pretty yeah. solid run. And that's a lot of responsibility with two icons uh, yeah. in the genre. Yeah. Like what is... Uh, what was the what, what is the earlier process? How did that begin then into the Clancy and then uh, yep. and then I want to find out what you're doing next because you have to knock out like three <laughs> books in one year and yeah, just knocking out one book in a year is well, difficult. Well, I'm trying to live up to the standard you set, my friend. <sighs> so I'm I'm trying and trying to I'm like if Jack can do one book and all this stuff and now two books, by golly, I can do three <laughs> books in a year now. Um, the way it so I think I debuted maybe a year or two after you mm-hmm. and my first book in the Matt Drake series was called Without Sanction. And then when I turned in my second book, which is The Outside Man that you've actually got sitting there, yep. um, Tom Colgan. Yeah, that was book two in the series. Tom Colgan, my editor, we did what was called the editorial call where your editor tells you, hey, here's what I liked. Here's what I didn't like. Here's what I want you to work on. And at the very end of the call is almost like a throwaway he said, so uh, would you be interested in writing the Clancy series? And, you know, at first I was like, as you're about was, to hang up and end the call. Yes, oh, wait, yes, I forgot literally something like the Colombo thing. One more question for you. <laughs> no, right, exactly. Clancy? Right before they get you. Mm-hmm. And at first, you know, I thought I heard him wrong. I'm like, well, what did he just say? And so I was super flattered, um, but I, I was going to tell him no. And, and I told him, let me think about it. And the reason I was going to tell him no is because in this business, oftentimes um, the work is there before the money is for sure. And so you were at that time I had, you know, I've got two kids now that are in college and one on the way. And I was working uh, another job at the same time. And I was like, I just don't have time for this. Like, I'm really flattered. I just couldn't do it. And I told my wife and she's like family meeting and calls the rest (laughs) of the kids in and She's like, dad's got the opportunity to write Clancy and he's too big of a wimp to do it. And so it was a little bit of an intervention on that um, regard. And then from Clancy, like I said, I think that is what got me the opportunity 
um, to write for Flynn because they they saw that I had a track record writing for a legacy thing. And so it it is, I'm finishing up um, my eighth book right now that I've worked with, with Tom Colgan. It'll be my fourth Clancy one. And he, he's just a phenomenal writer, uh, editor is just, uh, for folks who aren't writers, it's really hard to describe um, the relationship between writer and editor. But I have a good friend who's a Golden Glove boxer. And he told me once that the role of a referee in a fight is to keep the other opponent to keep your opponent safe so you don't have to worry about it so you can mm. fight as hard as you can and you don't have to worry about hurting them and i feel like a good editor is like that a good editor lets you go all out in the rough draft in the first version you don't have to worry about staying in the guidelines or staying in the uh, within the guardrails and then that editor pulls you back in and you just you you get a whole lot of trust in in a really really good relationship with that and I certainly had that with Tom and um and super anxious to see how that is going with Emily is Emily Bessler is another legend besides you you know she's got Brad Thor and Vince Flynn and just all kinds of incredible writers so I'm really really looking forward to working with her as well yeah, she's fantastic. And uh, yeah, I've never had an editorial call. So when I hear people talk about that, I'm always like, oh, editorial you call. You have no referee. You're <laughs> just alone and unafraid. It's pretty much like that. But, uh, but I do get editorial letters. So Emily will send me a yeah. letter that says, and usually it's it's uh, oftentimes about the things that I, like the Easter eggs that I drop in that yeah, yeah, uh, maybe yeah. like we'll, we'll understand because we saw First Blood and we saw Rambo and we saw yep. Commando and we saw Predator and those little things yep. that I throw in there that are subliminal that are just like yep. for us. Um, yep. and it's kind of like, what does this mean? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. explain this a little more, but it's one of those things yeah. that, uh, you can't explain a little more cause it's just, it's just <laughs> for those in the know. And for those that don't get it, um, <laughs> like who understand who Teasel is, uh, there might be a little Teasel <laughs> reference in this last book. Uh, that's just for those, you know, who, who, who get it. Everybody else can just go right over it, uh, which, it, which is fine. Um, but more often than not, it's those. And then it'll be, um, uh, well, uh, explain this a little more, uh, like, mm -hmm. or explain this a little more and then I'll go yeah. ahead and back. Like, Okay, I need yeah. to set it up a few chapters earlier, a little better, or give another hint, um, yep. that sort of thing. Because when you're involved in it, you think you're giving everything away. Like the smallest yep. hint is going to blow yep. it. Uh, but yep. that's because you're intimately involved with it every single day. Yep. You've done your outline. You know exactly yeah. who the good guys are and the bad guys are and exactly where you yep. want to put a twist here or there, whatever you're doing. But the reader doesn't. They're reading it for the yeah. first time. So uh, yeah. so that, I'll get that editorial letter back and then I'll make those fixes and then I'll print the whole thing out again and then move away from my computer, move into a different room. So it's just a different feeling yeah. and sit down and try yeah. to read it like I'm the first time, like I'm reading it for the first time, like I'm yeah. like I'm that audience, like I'm that readership uh, and then come back and you know do that a, that a couple of times. But uh, oh man, that's, uh, that's fantastic. But what I love also is that I have 100% creative freedom. And mm -hmm. I didn't know stepping into this, if that would be the case. I kind of, cause I obviously have yeah. no, no touch point with it before I, I came into it. So I thought that a publisher would say, Hey, this is what we've seen. This is the track record. This is what we, we have the yeah. formula. We have the model. This is what you need to do. Or, Hey, yeah. a little too political over here. Might want to dial that back. Or does he have to say this zero ever from yeah. anyone at Salmon and Schuster? So that's been amazing. Yeah. And that was kind of a surprise cause I didn't know, but, uh, but yeah. I love having that complete, which is different than the screenwriting side of the house. Cause the screenwriting side of the house, you have your script and it goes up and it goes all the way up and then it comes all the way down and everybody gets to make comments going up and down. And so, and you have a team and it's collaborative. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah. but which is Sounds totally like different experience. Uh, and I like them both now in writing, yeah. like you got to take full ownership. Like if someone doesn't like my book, it's 
100 yeah. on me yeah. uh and even my like my agent my only my only uh touch point with agents was hollywood movies uh you know so it's like you have that agent and they're always doing yep. their their like californication or whatever else yep. um and so i i thought that was kind of what a hollywood agent was like or an agent totally yeah. not my experience with agents and i like that they don't give me any advice yeah. because then i can't blame anyone but myself i can't say oh, i shouldn't listen to you and have it be a a thing in the relationship yeah. there's none of that because i don't get any input from my agent or from from emily or anyone at simon and schuster um so i like that <coughs> but then other side when you're doing the screenwriting stuff then totally different there are so yeah. many people um so if something doesn't work you can be like oh, i knew that wasn't gonna work or uh yeah. you know <laughs> there's that little thing or on the author side oh man that really worked much better than what i wanted yeah. to do um so yeah. it works it works both ways um yeah i feel like the best editors because uh, i've heard people say the same thing about emily and certainly it's been my experience with tom they have that distance from the book like you're talking about because they didn't write it but they understand the book like in a at a visceral level and they help you make it better and so they oh, yeah. understand what you're trying to do in your vision and then say, hey, if you added a little bit more to this scene, you would get this big payoff or something like that. And that's certainly been my experience with Tom. Like I can say unabashedly, he has made every single one of my books better for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. For that, that's their that's their job, you know. And the best, you know, Tom and Emily are the, mm -hmm. the are the best. Uh, I feel so fortunate to to be working with Emily. She's a, absolutely amazing. Um, and uh, just before I before we jump over here, uh, I wanted to ask you how you're going to uh, segment your time between three <laughs> between three books, um, and are you going to work on? some at the same time or is the only overlap coming like during editorial process yeah. or like, what is that looking like when you have essentially three books in a year? I'm going to uh, follow your model and sleep less is what I'm going to do. <laughs> I don't no, recommend uh, it, but sometimes there's nothing else <laughs> that you can do. Uh, and I got to no. tell you, I did three all nighters this time or in very close proximity to one another. And it was not like pulling all nighters back when I was in my early twenties, <laughs> even, even mid thirties, early forties, mid forties, even, uh, it's, uh, it hurt a little more this time and it was noticeable. <laughs> yeah, I actually, you were pretty kind. Um, I think when my second book came out, when the outside man did, and we talked about, you know, how you segment that up, how you do work. And I asked you, and that's what you said. You're like, I just don't sleep. I just keep working. And so I think um, what I'm going to do, I, I talked to Tom um, is that I'll finish the, the book I'm finishing right now is called weapons grade. And it'll be my fourth Clancy book. It comes out in August. And once I turn that in, it's actually due in about a week and a half or so. I'm going to jump into that Flynn book and I'm not going to try and do anything else for a while. And so what, Tom has been good enough um, to let me do is we kind of we kind of came to the agreement that I'd check in with him in December. And so maybe it would be um, to write another Matt book. Maybe it would be to write a Clancy book. Maybe it would be to write a standalone. And so he's he's been super, super gracious with that and is letting me kind of have the space I need right now. So from now and until the foreseeable future, I'm working on or will be working on my first Flynn book and then we'll figure out what comes next in December. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. I couldn't have gotten, uh, couldn't have found a better guy to, to take the torch yeah. here from Kyle, who's oh, done an amazing you. job. And I'm so excited to, to read this. I'm fired up to thank see you. where you, you take this. So, uh, amazing. But before that comes out, Forgotten War is, yep. is coming out and is it May or April? 
that it comes out. It's, so it was originally April, uh, May, but they moved it into April. So it actually comes out on the 25th. So they wanted to give, uh, I have that book that comes out on the 25th. And then my third Clancy book that's called Flashpoint comes out, uh, I think the 23rd of May. So they wanted to try and give it four weeks between the two. But Got yeah. it. Got it. Yeah. Awesome. Right here. The, uh, my, my, um, uh, these are galley copies for those that are watching or advanced readers edition or, um, uh, arcs advanced reader copies, but, uh, I don't like mine going out anymore because the first one, because <laughs> there was no, t- no deadline. It was kind of, it was very similar to what yeah. the books like second one, same thing. Cause there were all these delays with the department of defense. Yeah. Cause I sent that one, that one in. Um, yeah. uh, and so there's all these delays. So the galley ended up being pretty much like the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Third one, uh, a little less. So, I mean, so things, maybe people wouldn't notice, but I would like, I don't want yep. a copy out there. That's yep. um, not the best that it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this time I told, I, and same with last time, I didn't send any out, didn't send any out this mm-hmm. time, but a couple snuck out of Simon and Schuster. I found out yesterday <laughs> and I'm like, I, uh, cause I don't want the, the, anything that's not the best it can possibly be out there. So a couple snuck out there. So if anybody listening or reading got one, uh, don't read it. Wait for the hardcover. It's coming. (laughs) It's coming soon. Uh, I told uh, David Brown, my publicist, like, let's follow it. Let's just send the hardcovers out to uh, reviewers and people as soon as we possibly can um, and make up for them not being able to get a a galley because I changed a couple things in there that I'll notice. And I think in this one, because, you know, it is a rough draft, essentially. It's not yeah. a finished product. Yeah. Um, yep. So I like the the hardcovers going out. But awesome. Forgotten War, April 25th. Uh, yes, sir. April 25th. Awesome. Awesome. And I'm looking, I'm seeing my blurb on the back uh, without sanction right here. Nice. <laughs> Solid. Very cool. With Steve Barry, KJ Howes on there. Nice. Larry Bond. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, where did you guys link up? How did this all, all come about? How did you guys meet each other? So... I'll tell my version and then Al will probably tell the correct version. (laughs) Um, So one of our mutual friends is a, uh, I guess is one of the guys Al flew. So some guys I worked with for a long time once I got out of the FBI and then we're still working with um, before I went uh, and wrote full time, we're members of the Ranger Regiment. And so you you talked about Al being the Forrest Gump of (laughs) Of, uh, he is certainly he started the Afghan war and, and I guess came pretty close to ending it. And so my friends that were Rangers um, were in the platoon and one of them was the the team leader of the guys that responded to um, the whole Roberts Ridge tragedy. So when uh, Neil Roberts fell out of the back of, of Al Chinook and then um, Chapman was killed. And so they introduced us originally virtually. And then when I found out Al had that awesome book. Uh, coming out and started reading it as well. We, I, I talked him into uh, actually coming to Columbus with me. So we're going to do a joint signing at the um, Veterans Museum in Columbus. And just I thought it, it would be interesting because he he has a much more extensive aviation career than I did. But we were both in Afghanistan at the same time and and knew some of the same people. And so I thought it would be neat for us to get together. So that's my version. Al, tell him what really happened. <laughs> yeah, I know that, that, uh, that's pretty much it, you know, but first I got to tell you, uh, sitting here listening to you two. I mean, I got one book under my belt. I'm working on another, you guys got like what? 50, 50 between you, <laughs> you know? and it's Don does. Jeez. So you guys are awesome. But, uh, yeah. So like Don said, we, we kind of met virtually and I think Don reached out maybe on LinkedIn first and, yeah. and said, Hey, uh, 
I was on Red Wings. I, I see you were on Red Wings and we kind of wrote back and forth a little bit and it just kind of grew from there. Yeah, man. But uh, before you got there, you'd been in the army for a little bit already. And I wanted to ask you <laughs> about that, um, uh, about that path into the, into the military. Cause it's been, it was quite a run for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, right out of high school, you had the be all you can be commercials. Oh yeah. You know, I heard they're bringing them back by the way. Did you guys see that? I did. Did you guys yeah. see they're bringing them back? I don't know if it's true or not. Cause you never know these days what's fake or what's yeah. a meme or what's a joke. And, uh, but I saw they're bringing some back because of their disastrous run of commercials, probably over the last at least 15 years. Um, yeah. you know, that I saw they're bringing some back and I think it might be, are they actually bringing back the old commercials? Do you remember the one with the guys all like 101st or 82nd, whoever mm-hmm. they jump in? And then the guy's like, morning, sergeant. And he has like a, he has this cup mm-hmm. of coffee, like his Folgers, you know, like there yeah. it is canteen mug. I love that commercial. It was fantastic. But, uh, well, I think they're bringing something back like that. Well, you guys had top gun and we had firebird. So it wasn't from a recruiting standpoint, it wasn't quite equal. So they had to do something. Yeah. And air force had iron Eagle, um, which is kind of like a cult <laughs> movie. Now it's like a cult classic. Now people, I, I, you have the, the Walkman strapped to the leg and then you hit the button and it's just rocking the eighties tunes. Um, so air force got a little bit, but then yeah, top gun kind of overshadowed it all. You know, it's just, that's just how it goes. But, uh, but yeah, you saw the commercials. Yeah, so like three of those were all helicopter things. You know, you got a fog bound helicopter inbound, you know, or, or the Cobra guy. And uh, so I just wanted to be in helicopters, and the Army seemed like the way to do it. And uh, so I joined as an enlisted guy, uh, aircraft mechanic. And I did nine years waiting my time to put in for flight school. And I was in uh, West Germany at the time and uh, put in for it, got it, and, uh, you know, went from there, you know. Man. 17 years in the 160th. And was uh, that, um, cause I, I read this, uh, this book a little, a, a, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, was it, did you do the, you went warrant officer from there? Yeah. And, yeah. um, and man, cause it, cause now at the time, did they have the, uh, high school, the flight school program back then, or they didn't have that? They, they did. And that's what I tried to do. And, uh, you know, I walked into the recruiter. I was like, Hey, you know, I want to fly helicopters. He's like, Oh, you know, pump the brakes turbo. Uh-huh. You know, uh, <laughs> it's not that easy. Uh, so he's the one that talked me into doing the, uh, enlisted thing first, which, you know, I think that was kind of a gimmick for him. You know, he didn't get credit for warrant officers or officers, yep. but, uh, it was good <sighs> advice, you know, cause, because, uh, I worked on UH one Hueys, which is what I learned on in flight school. And so everybody else, all my, uh, classmates had to study, you know, the, uh, the aircraft itself. And I already knew it. So I could worry about aeromedical and aerodynamics and things like that. So. It was much easier for me because I knew that. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, the high school to flight school thing, I think it's such a great program for the Army, but you got to look into it because those recruiters, like you have to go and you can't go into the recruiting <laughs> office for anyone listening that's thinking, like you can't go in there expecting for them to like lay out all the information and then yeah. let you choose the best path for you. No, they have their quotas. <laughs> they needed a mechanic when you walked in there. And uh, and same thing when I when I walked in, they didn't, I don't know if they even knew about something called the dive fairer program. Uh, so I had to educate them on it. And it was the, in the back, cause there was no internet obviously back then. Um, there was one page in the back of a book and it might've been called the commandos, but it kind of laid out how you get into army special forces, army rangers, um, to the seal teams. And it kind of laid out a couple of different paths. And one was called the dive fairer program, which when you walk in, all it meant was that you were guaranteed the opportunity to try out in boot camp. 
And that's all I wanted. That's what I, and, and so that's what I, I had to tell him about it. I had to come back after he researched it and found out. So it would fit his quotas because it was still enlisted in an enlisted slot. Um, but you signed on for six years instead of like the three or four that everybody else was signing up for. And then I got to boot camp and found out that everyone gets a chance to try out for the SEAL teams <laughs> in boot camp. So all they did was get you for the six years and instead of like three or four. Uh, but hey, that's just how it goes. So yeah, those recruiters, you know, yeah, bless them. Thank you. But they're, they, you know, they have a mission. They have their mission. And uh, that mission might not be aligned with, uh, with your wants and needs and desires. Uh, it's needs of the Army, needs of the Navy. Uh, but the high school, the flight school thing, awesome. I mean, you can be graduating high school one day and uh, a day, a week, a month later um, be on this program that's going to put you in, uh, in the cockpit. Like, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Amazing. Um, I've met a lot of guys that did that. That's why that's the only reason I know about it. Cause I know a lot of people that, that did that, that I flew with. Cause I asked them, you know, how'd you end up in this seat? Um, but, uh, first Gulf war that comes around. What are you doing for the first Gulf war? Yeah. So I graduated, um, in 89 and right, right at the end of it into 1990. And I was in the Chinook transition and I went on leave after that showed up in Savannah, Georgia, Hunter army airfield. And about two weeks later, Saddam invaded Kuwait. And, uh, you know, I was the most junior guy in the company because back in those days, the Chinook uh, community was all CW4s. There were no W1s. So that's and, chief warrant uh, officer they, for those listening or watching. Yeah. Yeah. And they, um, you know, the Army had to kind of refill those ranks, kind of like the airlines today. You know, all the senior guys are all retiring at the same time. So, you know, I showed up as the new guy, and uh, we immediately flew the aircraft up to Wilmington, put him on a boat, a very slow boat, uh, off to Saudi Arabia. And in the meantime, they had to continue to train me. And luckily, the 160th, the 3rd Battalion 160th, was right next door. And they had a good relationship with them, and they let us use one of their basic aircraft called the Warbird, which really, I just had a couple extra radios and that was about it. You know, no, none of the special mission equipment. Mm -hmm. So I got all my training in a 160th aircraft, which was kind of neat. That is cool. Did you know about 160th before that? I did. I did. But uh, only, you know, from the enlisted side, you know, because I was a the aircraft mechanic and guys would show up. You know, every once in a while, the 160th will make guys leave, you know, mm -hmm. NCOs, non-commissioned officers, to make them get experience out in the real world, if mm -hmm. you will. You know, so that when we come back, you know, they will know the, you know, the current trends in the real army, if you will, and uh, maybe have an appreciation for uh, what, how, they, how they've got it. Yeah. And uh, so that's the only thing I knew about them. Okay. Uh, and in the Gulf War, you know, our commander was married, uh, it, was a, it was a lady, uh, Marie Rossi, and she was married to one of the warrant officers over in uh, 3rd Battalion. So they would come visit us when we were in uh, Saudi Arabia. And uh, they would, you know, regale me with stories of what they were doing. And, uh, you know, as a young W1, I'm just, you know, glued to the, to the chair listening. Yeah. Yeah. Can you cover it for the people that are like 160th? What are they talking about? Uh, can you give a little history of the 160th, how they, uh, they were formed and why? Yeah. So the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, or 160th SOAR, also known as the Night Stalkers, uh, were formed right after Operation Eagle Claw. So, uh, you know, was it 1979, you know, you get the, uh, the Iranian hostage crisis where they take over the U.S. Embassy. Mm -hmm. And the military put together a special operations task force to go rescue them. And unfortunately, it was an ad hoc organization. You know, they threw it all together 
And, you know, one of the tenants of the special operations community is you can't mass produce or, uh, what's it say? Uh, you can't. Yeah. The, the four, the four, what do they call them? The four tenants or the four, uh, like the yeah. Soft truths, I think. Yeah. Soft but truths. Anyway, That's it. Soft truths. You yeah. can't just make special operations force. They have to. Can't be mass be produced. Together, right? yep. And, uh, they went in with, you know, the Delta force, which was new at the time from the army, the air force C-130s, the, um, Helicopter force was actually originally Navy pilots flying uh, CH-53 uh, minesweepers. And they originally wanted Chinook helicopters with Army pilots, but they were afraid that that would be an OPSEC spike, right? Operational security would be, why are there Army Chinooks on an aircraft carrier, you know? And they'd figure it out. So they said, well, we use Navy. Mm. And uh, eventually, you know, night vision goggle flying was new at the time. And, you know, interestingly, you know, they used to have a piece of paper over the landing light, right? So the landing light helps you see at night, but with night vision goggles, you had this, it was like um, brown paper with an oil on it, right? It was developed wow. by the OSS in World War II. And the problem with it is when you turned it on, the uh, the goggles could see, but if you left it on too long, it would burn through and then you no longer had a covert light. Yeah. So they used it very sparingly. Landing in the dust is difficult. And these poor guys had no idea what they were doing. And the Delta guys wanted them changed. So they changed out for Marine pilots thinking, well, you know, they fly to the beach at least, you know, they should be good, but they weren't really prepared for it either. I mean, nobody really was. Yeah. So, uh, you know, massive failure at what they call desert one, the, uh, you know, the, uh, C-130s land, they're going to do, uh, wet wing, uh, gas operations, right? The helicopter's going to land. They landed with the minimum number of aircraft that had problems in the dust. And then even one of those aircraft was really non-mission capable with a hydraulic problem. So they aborted. And once they aborted, unfortunately, you know, you take off in the dust, right? And then the rotor wash kicks up all this dust. And the, uh, the Air Force ground guide had flashlights, right? Like you see at the, at the airports. And he's, you know, doing this with the flashlights and telling them what to do. And then he thinks the helicopter's okay. He sticks those in his back pocket. And he walks into the aircraft and those lights are still on and the helicopter pilots can only see those lights. And they followed it right into the C-130 oh, and of course, you know, big explosions full of gas mm. and big failure, big national strategic level failure. So they formed uh, a joint special operations command and with it came a dedicated aviation unit, which is the 160th. And they were actually planning uh, was a honey badger, which was the second attempt to go get them. And then the hostages were released and, uh, the DOD decided, you know, we're just going to keep this organization together, which really turned out to be good, you know, uh, in, in hindsight. Yeah. I mean, I, I always wonder what would happen had that mission succeeded. Um, and we didn't learn those lessons the hard way where we have learned them later on. And then when will we have learned them? later on. Um, right. but, uh, some of the other parts of that are, are incredible that people don't know about like the, the stole, the short takeoff and landing aircraft that flew in, I forget a week or a month before to get samples of the sand and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. like, that guy who, who did that and got out of Iran, you know, and, and then, uh, Dick Meadows going in with a couple, uh, with a couple other guys. I think they found a couple of people that spoke like Germany and uh, Farsi in Germany and were like, Hey, you and you, you're voluntold, come here. And so, yeah, oh, and it's these, insane. Uh, it's just they wild. Desert one was a plan. Desert two was they would fly to an area and look for a place to ground logger over day. Yeah. And I've seen the imagery where they were looking. It's like, uh, it's, you know, 10 meter CIB. It's horrible. 
you know, I, I, it would have failed at that point. If yeah. Not, uh, yeah. Then you still have these guys in there. You still had Dick Meadows and these guys in Iran after this thing happens and they got to make their, their way out. But, um, the plan to go into the embassy. And I think there was another location that was offsite where some of the hostages had been moved. And so another element was going to go there and then they were going to re relink back up. I think at the soccer field across the street, land the helos in there and get out. I mean, it's pretty ambitious. Um, and yeah. if that man, yeah. Amazing. And I'll tell you the, uh, Sante the, raid lessons the cover of my book. Mm -hmm. On the cover of the book in front of you, yep. right? That's a MH-47 uh, Echo. And it's got uh, multi-mode radar, air refueling. It's got a bunch of other stuff to it. It essentially was built to fly that Desert One scenario without wow. having to land in the dust. Amazing. And my first several missions into Afghanistan uh, were, you know, dust storms that were worst I've ever seen, you know, wind and, and mountains and all that. Basically, the Iranian hostage uh, scenario. Yeah. And, uh, because of the foresight of the people that uh, built that aircraft, you know, we were able to do it without much trouble. It's, in, it's incredible. And, uh, and Don, you're not even in the military at this point yet. What, what, year, what year are you coming in? You're still in like uh, no, junior high. No, I, I still, I, I went the, uh, the, the, um, a little bit like Al, I, I went and saw the recruiter my junior year of high school, and I told him I wanted to be an airborne ranger. And he's like, "If I got the deal for you," and my my dad was kind of intervened and said, "You're not doing delayed entry program. If you when you turn 18, if you want to go <coughs> down by myself, but I'm not signing anything from you at 17." And so, fortunately, or, or maybe unfortunately, in the next year, I learned about ROTC and and got a Army ROTC scholarship to uh, the Ohio State University, and then uh, branched aviation after that. So I came in in '97. And then I think my first flight school is about a year and a half. And then you do your air, at least back then, you used to do your aircraft transition afterwards. And the Apache is the longest transition because it's a, it's a super complicated airplane and it has a very complicated mission set too. And so it's, it's right around 18 months or two years, depending on what they call bubbles, the gaps in flight school. And so then I got to my first duty assignment, which was South Korea in uh, 1999. And that was prior to the war on terror. That was a great assignment, especially as a young lieutenant, because it was the closest um, you could be to, you know, quote unquote combat where you still had a, an active war zone. And in, in, and in fact, when, you know, the couple months before I got there, the, the North Koreans had sent some midget subs full of commandos that ended up beaching and then were running across South Korea causing havoc. And while I was there, there was a point where um, we were getting our go to war stock out and loading hellfires on um, Apaches because the North Koreans were busy sinking South Korean boats. And so it was great, both from a sense of urgency and because you got to learn doctrine like as a, i was a scout platoon leader and so you had to understand what does the enemy formation look like what is the order of march when you're flying and you come up into that attack by fire area what are you looking for to come through the kill zone you know what are your targets going to be how do you do calls for fire and so it's a, it was a great great training ground for a young lieutenant and frankly in the 20 years after that we've lost much of that because aviation, especially attack aviation has transitioned much more to just close air support, which is another mission set. We used it a lot in Afghanistan, but we had to go back and figure out how do we fight a big force on force near peer war. 
And that's what they're doing right now. And the national training centers is kind of relearning those lessons that I learned as a young Lieutenant long, long ago. Did, uh, did they always team you up with a, with a warrant officer to make sure you didn't get into mischief? Yeah. So you would much like, um, much like a tank crew, your, your, um, lieutenants and your commanding officer usually had the most senior instructor pilots and that was twofold. So number one, um, on the commander side, especially you wanted a warrant officer. So warrant officers in the Apache community, it used to be that, um, you were, you were rated as one seat or another because the two seats were so different before the longbow came out. And so if you were not the pilot in command, you were traditionally a front seater. And uh, they often would call front seaters that would so that were subpar, like a sack of potatoes. Like I got a sack of potatoes in the front seat with me because the opposite. <laughs> about as useful as that really, is that uh, they're about as useful as having a sack of potatoes. up there? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They, that helps with the aircraft weight and balance, but not much <laughs> else. And so you want um, a really senior warrant officer like Al to be able to take that lieutenant under his wing or her wing and teach them how to fly and then teach them how to fight the aircraft. But then more importantly, once you're actually in an engagement, so as a platoon leader, you'd have four other Apaches in your attack by fire position. And so if you're the scout platoon leader, you're calling a lot of times I'd be calling the indirect fire or talking with Cass. And so you don't a lot of times have the ability to fight the helicopter or you need somebody that's senior enough that can fight that helicopter or talk to your wingmen when you're talking something else. So the warrant officers are, are very much it's, you know, it's akin to the rest of the service where you have that crusty platoon sergeant that takes you under his wing and shows it to you. That's what the warrant officers do in aviation is show you how to fly, how to fight the aircraft, and then more importantly, probably how to be an aviator. Yeah. Did you, what, did you have a favorite weapons platform on that Apache? Yeah, I, I love the gun because, man, when that thing goes off, the whole helicopter just rocks and you can feel it in your chest like that. And it's it's so much fun to shoot. And it's funny because that was designed as an area weapon system. And so they envisioned it, you know, you shooting into a formation of vehicles. It was never meant to be a point target system where but man, by the time we went to Afghanistan and Iraq, there had been enough software upgrades to it and enough knowing how to use that weapon. It was like a rifle bullet. You know, when we were when I was in Afghanistan, every time a new special operations team would rotate into country, we would take them across the river in Bagram and practice doing close air support with them so that we call them CCAs, close combat attacks, so they could get used to calling us in or not. And it just so happened that the A team I was working with, I had gone to college with that guy. He and I were in ROTC together and I heard his voice and I'm like, Doug, is that you? And he's like, yeah. And so we're shooting for him. And they're designating the targets at first with their um, 50 cows. And so you can see the rounds hitting the dirt and you're shooting where they're shooting. And so we come in for another gun run and they're using their M4s and stuff. And I can see where the rounds are kicking up, but it's really, really close to their Humvees. It's not very far away. And so I was the pilot in command. I was in the back seat. My front seater, they wanted to do a gun run because you always do the least casually producing weapon first. And so you lead with the gun in case you're off before you turn around and put rockets on target. 
And so my front seater is like, sir, I don't, I don't think we should take the shot. And I'm like, nonsense. If they're calling it in, we're taking it. And so I was the gun and put this round just in front and you could see him go. Doo, 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 doo. And then they're diving under their Humvees. And my buddy Doug came on the radio and he's like, I didn't think you'd shoot that close. And I'm like, well, then you shouldn't have called me in. But with that 30 millimeter, you could get really, really close. And it was, it was such a great weapon system. And did the helmet work? Did it, uh, for aiming that weapon system or the rockets, does it like go where your head turns and that sort of thing? And and did that work? And if it didn't, how did you, what was your backup to that thing going down, but still having to do a a gun run? Yeah. So you had to make some adjustments because originally, like I said, that, that weapons platform was envisioned for Germany sitting in the fold of gap and raining missiles and rockets and 30 millimeter down on, um, down on uh, Russian armor that's coming through. And so that gun is rated out to something like 4,000 meters, but it's rated that way if you slave it to the, to the infrared sensor and you laze and you're sitting at a hover. So in Afghanistan, most of the engagements we did were you know only four or 500 meters away or less than that. And you had to do it with um, without hovering because number one, we didn't have the power to hover. Number two, the great book, actually, Alan was was part of that too. I'm, I'm assuming in Anaconda, the Apaches there tried to do, you know, traditional. I'm going to hover, and they were getting shot at, and they didn't have enough power to hover, and so they had to transition to diving fire. And they literally had the older warrants briefing on the radio, like this is how you do it, and they're trying to learn on the fly. And so we knew that going in and had set up gunneries back home to do diving fire and to get really good at it. And so the way that you did it, instead of using the laser, you could also dial in a manual range into the into the fire control computer and say, I'm going to dial in about 400 meters. And then as you're looking, the gun is slave to your eye. And there's also a a different it's a little diamond that shows you where the the nose of the helicopter is. And so you look at the target and you have a crosshairs that's your eye and then you you uh, play with the pedals until you get the nose of the helicopter underneath where your eyes looking and then you squeeze off the rounds and it and you start to be able to get where you can judge that four or five hundred meters um, pretty well. And then and with the rockets the same way, like you, you get to the point where you're really like by the end of my tour there, I could put, I couldn't put rockets through the hatch of a BMP, but I could hit it, you know, nine times out of 10 as you're doing it. And in fact, um, Al's brethren in the 160th, the, the little bird gun guys, they actually use um, red pencil marks on their cockpit for different ranges and stuff. Because once you're, once you're flying out of a hover, you get the forward um, wind blows those vortices out and the rockets become very, very accurate. And so it's a completely different skill set. But once you got good at it, you know, by the end, you, you could put rockets or 30 on on anything very, very accurately. Yeah, that's why I asked because I was in Afghanistan. I think I was the guy showed me and my mind might be I might be conflating Iraq and Afghanistan and I was in DAPS. I'm not positive because a lot of time has passed. But I remember going up in the DAP for the first time uh, and being surprised that I think there was like a crack in the windshield or something like that. A little one. And the guy was like, yeah, that's perfect for this angle and this distance or something like that. But then I was like, what, you're just drawing things like what's going on? And uh, so Alan, I want to ask you about that. Like, um, like, did you have those things? You're just writing things on the like the windshield of some of these frames like for for daps and uh, i think i saw that on the kiowa too and i think it was the kiowa maybe that had the crack in it yeah they do that with the uh the the ah6 in particular right so they just uh they'll look at a rivet on the windshield and they just know you know they get in and they know where their 
their bore site is essentially. Yeah. They're going to put a little X there and, uh, you know, they'll correct with Kentucky windage, you know, and if you've ever seen them, you have seen them, is they'll lead with the minigun and they kind of, as they come in on the bump, they'll they'll kind of adjust the aircraft heading and attitude with the minigun. And once the minigun's on target, they'll pickle off the rockets and then they, they break and do it again. Amazing. And the DAPs do the same thing. And uh, for, for everybody listening, what's that? What's a DAP? DAP is a direct action penetrator. It's a armed uh, MH60 uh, helicopter. And they are my best friends. I love the DAP. <laughs> I think it's for, it's amazing. Are they still, they still flying and use the same way? Yeah. Yeah. And so they've got the same cannon as, uh, as the Apache, you know, it's, it's fixed mounted on the side and, uh, they, you know, they, they'll arm it with also miniguns, which we had on the MH 47 Chinooks as well. And that's, you know, what, what Don was talking about, you know, the feel of the gun going off, you know, when the, uh, you're sitting in the right seat in particular in an MH 47 and you get, you get a much bigger traverse with the gun so they can shoot a lot further forward. And if your window's open, they love traversing all the way over and ripping that baby off. And, uh, you just, you know, you always lose your awesome. teeth. You know, like, oh, wow. <laughs> so great. I remember the, uh, the chief warrant officers in Afghanistan and, uh, what I thought was the late, uh, 2003, but it was really now looking back pretty kind of early. Um, and I, I think one of the guys, I think he had Vietnam experience and then like a break in service and then back in. But at the time I thought he was like 80 years old. Um, he was probably like 60. 55, maybe 50. Cause the pictures now, I, things I thought were old. I'm like, wait a sec. That's like, <laughs> I'm older than that now. Uh, but, uh, I think one of the guys had, uh, in one sixtieth that we were working with, that was, I think he was flying on the DAP, I think. Um, but I think he had Vietnam experience back then and then breaking service and came back. It, it, it likely was the little bird guys. We had a okay. couple of guys with the hip replacements. That's so amazing. Yeah. It's like space cowboys, space cowboys coming in. You know, <laughs> it's a uh, man. It's amazing. Uh, so, what did you do between Alan between the first Gulf War and uh, and nine eleven? Uh, I know Desert Fox was in there. We got stood up, spun up for that, but we didn't didn't end up doing anything. Some seals might have, but we we didn't. Um, yep. uh, what, what did you do between uh, Gulf War and September eleventh? I just uh, I got better, you know, uh, at flying. So you know the. The big thing I put in the book is that, you know, during the Gulf War, the Army claimed it owned the night, right, with the helicopters and combined arms. And the fact of the matter is, once we got to Saudi Arabia, you know, we had trained in the National Training Center out at Fort Irwin, and it's a different kind of desert. You know, everybody thinks mm -hmm. desert's desert. Well, it's not. You know, the scrubby, uh, rocky desert of uh, you know, California is different than the sand dunes of Saudi Arabia. And the problem is the sand dunes in Saudi kind of came up and then there was like a lip and then it came up again. And so you'd see this and people would think that's the top of the hill, but it's not, you get this other part and they were ripping landing gear and, and skids off of helicopters at the beginning. Right. And so the very big battle that we did, the, um, the what they call the left hook, right. They, mm -hmm. they moved us all way out in the desert and then uh, made the, uh, Iraqis think we were going to invade Kuwait, you know, and instead we came around the backside and uh, they did it during the day because if we had done it at night, we would have lost 10 aircraft easy, you wow. know, just to collisions, you know. Uh, so after that, everything was at night. 
So whether you went to NTC, JRTC, the Joint Readiness Training Center, National Training Center, San Diego, any of these big operations, it was always with night crews. Mm. And in the Chinook community, remember I said everybody was very senior, except for me. Well, we had a bunch of W1s come in, uh, so the lowest level of uh, warrant officer. And we're all goggle proficient, night vision goggle proficient. So there were six crews that were set aside for night vision stuff. And all the old guys just didn't fly at night. And they just let us do it. So I did that for a couple of years. Then I went to Korea and I was a, what we call a, a no fly line UT, um, a unit trainer. And the idea was you would fly the border between North and South Korea and all the sectors and you would teach the new pilots what to look for. So that if they, back then there was really no GPS in the aircraft. It was, uh, you know, a handheld map and a compass. Wow. So you could easily mistake where you were and fly across the border into North Korea, which happened uh, the year after I left with oh, wow. uh, an OH-58. Yeah. So that's what I, I got to do. And then I was a night vision goggle trainer as well. And then after that, I went to Fort Rucker, Alabama as an instructor. So I would teach people how to fly shows. And I was just a little too young for that in that I wasn't ready to do that job. You know, I wanted to be out you know, with my hair on fire and, oh, yeah. and doing some cool stuff. So I finally put in for the 160th and uh, got picked up and, and went from there. So really, I just got a lot of time under my belt. And uh, yeah. And what are you flying right. when you get when you get picked up? Do you know what airframe you're getting picked up for when you go to 160th? Yeah. Or can you uh, yeah. can you hop around during your time there? What's that like? You can you can hop around a little depending. So because they needed Chinook pilots and I had a, I was pretty high time in Chinook at at that period of my life. And uh, so that's where I was going. And I had an opportunity. I could go to Savannah or I could go to Fort Campbell. And the difference was the Savannah guys were getting the hand-me-downs of the MH-47 Delta AWC cockpit, which is, you know, neat aircraft in itself, but it wasn't the most technologically uh, superior. Like the MH-47E or Echo was brand new. I mean, it was like a year old when I got there. So, um, yeah, so I, I knew that, but I know guys, uh, because I was an instructor at the 160th, you know, I would train the new guys coming in and they might be an Apache guy or it could be a, a KW, a Kiowa Warriors when they were around. And to be honest with you, they made the best 160th Chinook pilots uh, because they didn't have any uh, preconceived notions. Like a Chinook guy that comes in, chances are he's not all that, you know, he doesn't have much cowboy in him. Uh, <laughs> and if you get a Blackhawk guy, because the Chinook mission in the 160th is, is a lot like a Blackhawk mission in the conventional forces. Yeah. It's assault for the most part. It's what we call a heavy assault. So the Blackhawk guys that come in, they have what we call interference in their mind, right? They're thinking, this isn't how you do assault. It's like, no, that's how you do it with a Chinook, not with a Blackhawk. So they fight you a little bit, and the Chinook guys fight you a little bit. And the Apache guys and the KW guys are like, sure. Tell me what to do. And they just do it. Right. Wow. And the and the cool thing is, is they're, you know, the glass cockpit, you know, um, instead of having all these what we call steam gauges, you know, the old fashioned gauges <laughs> with a needle, you know, uh, you've got little TV screens. And the Apache guys and the KW guys were used to that. So it, it made a good transition. And are you there on 9-11? Where are you on 9-11? Yeah, 9-11, I was at Camp Beauregard, Louisiana, down at the Joint Readiness Training Center. I was actually doing a, a, a maritime operation with uh, fifth group mm. and the special boat unit out of uh, Redstone. Mm. Uh, so it was SEALs and, and SF guys. 
and uh, we were infilling them to a riverine operation, you know, with their Zodiacs, and then they hit, hook up with the uh, Sockars, the boats, mm -hmm. and they would go do their mission. And then the next morning, you know, 9-11 happened, and uh, it was, you know, the rest is history. Jeez. Recently on Change Agents with Andy Stumpf, Andy sat down with former Force Recon Marine, DOD contractor, and co-founder of Save Our Allies, Chad Rubichaud, to discuss saving American allies left behind following the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Probably 100,000 people swarming on the airport. People are being trampled to death. Picture yourself as like a 20-year-old going there wanting to teach English at a school or provide medical aid to women. She has her blue passport. She has to go to a Taliban fighter with an AK-47 who's murdering people in the street. That's just not going to happen. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Change Agents with Andy Stump wherever you get your podcasts and get the full cinematic experience on YouTube at This Is Ironclad. All right, today I want to talk about Protect.com. That is P-R-O-T-E-K-T. Com. Started by my buddy, Nick Norris from the SEAL teams, who was recently on the podcast. He's all about health and wellness and living that best life. So what we have here, hydration, immunity, energy, rest, liquid packs. Because we all want to feel our best. We dream of waking up with plenty of energy to excel at our work, our personal lives, and have a great workout every single day. But the reality is, very few of us do that. That's why Protect was started. And you can grab a convenient pack right here. This is energy. So this has been boosting me through my latest novel. And look at that, it's a liquid pack right there. You just, bam, add it to a glass, add a little water, and you are good to go. So hydration, love the hydration, and the immunity, and the clarity, which I'm going to take as soon as this podcast is over, and I get back to writing. So all of that, plus the rest. How important is that rest? Right here, take that an hour and a half before bed for some great sleep. And for hydration right here, 30 minutes after you wake up, and right before your workout. So swap that daily energy drink for the energy, try that hydration, that immunity, that rest. And they also have products like this, Reef Safe Sunscreen, SPF 50 Protect, right there. And right now, you can get 25% off. Go to protect.com, that is P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com slash Danger Close for 25% off. Go check them out. And uh, Don, where are you on 9-11? Yeah, so I was at Fort Hood, um, which was, so I got done being a platoon leader. The way it works for um, Army or Army Aviation for commission guys, that everybody's, Al's commissioned to, but kind of our slang is that people, officers who aren't warrant officers, we call commissioned, and then everybody else warrants, is that you fly when you're a platoon leader, and then you come off and you move to a staff job where you don't fly very much. And then you fly again when you were commander. And so I was a platoon leader for almost two years in Korea. And so then I came to Fort Hood to do what's called your assistant S3 time. And it's where you're the, the assistant to the operations officer. So you do, you write op orders, you come up with the plans that the unit's going to do. You don't fly very much at all. You, you, everybody hates it. It's the, it's the dreaded staff time. And, um, it for was those funny, listening, that's why you go warrant. Yes, exactly. Actually, I had, it's funny because I had, uh, Al and I were talking about it before. It is not uncommon. 
a lot of commission guys want to go to the 160th and they have far fewer commission slots than they do warrant slots. And so it's not uncommon for commission guys to decide to resign their commission and become warrant officers um, to go to the 160th so they can fly all the time. But the um, Fort Hood is was at the time, I think it still is, the biggest military post in the world, and it was completely open, like mm-hmm. most of the Army posts. There were no guards. There was nothing like that. And so 9-11 happened, and the next day they said, or, or that night, they said, hey, we're closing down posts. We're putting MPs out. You might want to get uh, to post a little early tomorrow because we think there might be some delays. And so I had <laughs> some appointment at 7 in the morning, and I got there at 530 in the morning and did not get on post until five hours later. (laughs) And there were literally like people were running out of gas. They were just walking into post. Like it was, it was a nightmare. Um, But, and, and, and people, it was very, I don't know how it was uh, with you in the Navy, but everybody was very reactionary, I guess, somewhat understandably, but there was also, you had this duality where every commander's like, I have to do something but how much do I trust the Joes under my command to do it, right? And so you would have amazing things like Joes standing outside guarding the commissary, which is the, the grocery store on post, wearing a road guard vest, holding an M4 with no ammunition in it. And so I guess they were supposed to club the guy to death if they did it, or they had – my buddy ran the maintenance um, platoon, and so his guys – there was an airfield fence – And his guys and girls had to stand on the other side of the airfield fence in the middle of Texas, September with no weapons. They're just standing there, you know, in case bad guys come through this fence, they can be speed bumps. And so it was, you know, you can't follow them too much because it came so far out of left field. Everybody was just trying to figure out what And in Fort Campbell. They had something called like I over Campbell, I guess how you could talk to that, where they were literally yeah. flying 24 hours a day, you know, 58s and stuff up trying to do it because nobody wanted to be the guy or girl who was in command after 9-11 and something happened. And you could say, well, at least I put them outside the commissary. I didn't give them bullets, but by God, they were there protecting the groceries. So it was a little bit of nonsense for sure. Oh, that is so brutal, uh, but it's not not shocking. Army training, sir. Yeah, uh, yeah we were, I was deployed. I was in uh, in Guam, so we thought we were going. Like we were, it was midnight in Guam. People started knocking on doors up and down the barracks hallway, and we go yeah. down to the basement and watch the Twin Towers fall on TV. But we started palletizing essentially uh, right away, just thinking we're going in. Um, but I remember I was the intel rep for our platoon, and the commanding officer of the base didn't even know what Al-Qaeda was, didn't know what it meant. I gave him a mm-hmm. brief as an E5. I'm reading because I'm reading terrorism books my whole life, and I'm just, you know, I've I was up on it as much as you could probably be on on 9/11, yeah. um, and gave a gave a, a brief about Bin Laden and Al Qaeda and what it meant and how it started and uh, the terrain in Afghanistan and what we could expect and what the Soviets had done. Like I had I had done all that um, research and I just continued doing more. Continue to do it today, but mm-hmm. um, but yeah. So I, I didn't see any of that stuff, but I heard about the similar things happening on Navy bases uh, back home. Um, yeah. And we thought we were going. We thought we were going to be like Al here going in, um, <laughs> and uh, we palletized and we waited. I had to do some uh, uh, close protection stuff for what they then called Sink Pack Fleet, which was the they used to call it Commander in Chief of uh, the Pacific Fleet. Uh, and then they took that away uh, and just I think probably just called them Commander Sink uh, Sink Pack Fleet instead of Commander in Chief. Um, so did some 
bodyguard stuff for him essentially as, as he mm-hmm. went down to Philippines and a couple different places to kind of shore up alliances and, and that sort of a thing. Um, and then got back, everything was ready, and we jumped on the C-17s and headed to the Middle East and did not go to Afghanistan as we thought we did. Uh, <laughs> we took over the shipboarding operations from Team 3 to enforce the UN oil embargo against Iraq. Um, so we thought we missed it, uh, but then didn't really, obviously. Um, but how, how long uh, how long is it before you guys um, – get the word that you're going or do you start like palletizing things right away? Mission planning. Do you know where you're going to go? Do you know you're going to be the one to go? Like how did, how did yeah, that work? So, you know, it's funny. I had just, uh, you saw the movie horse soldiers probably right. Mm-hmm. Where Chris Hemsworth, uh, is the Mark Nuge character. Yeah. Yeah. And he just goes across the street to be a staff guy. Right. And then nine 11 happens. He wants back on the team. So I left B Company, 2nd Battalion, as the standardization instructor pilot, the SIP. So that's the chief pilot. And I went across the street to be the battalion SIP, right? So now I have two companies underneath me instead of one. But we drive up, the battalion commander and I drive up from uh, Camp Beauregard back to Campbell, you know, that night. And uh, it's about an 11-hour drive because we had no secure uh, comms or any uh, high-side intel so we get back to Campbell and we find out, you know, Masood had been assassinated and, you know, Al-Qaeda was involved. And the next day I drove with uh, a couple other planners down to Tampa to start planning the retribution. I mean, this is the next day. And uh, our original mission was just personnel recovery. So if uh, any of the aircraft got shot down, we would go rescue the downed pilots and uh, air crew. And there was no talk of doing infills of special forces or any of that kind of stuff. So we're gone, I don't know, two and a half weeks later. We, we've, we, there's two task forces, right? There's Task Force Dagger, which was up in Uzbekistan, the north side of uh, Afghanistan, and Task Force Sword, which was out uh, on, the, on the Gulf. And uh, they would come in from the south, and we'd go down from the north. Ours was a more clandestine mission. Theirs was more overt, you know, with JSOC, uh, raiding... Uh, Omar's compound, and we were doing the infills with the, what they call the UW campaign, uh, unconventional warfare. But uh, we we get there, we build up two aircraft, they start the bombing as soon as we're ready to go. And uh, then, I don't know, two weeks later, fifth group shows up, you know, and they say, uh, hey, we'd like you to do these infills. And Colonel Mulholland, now General Mulholland, uh, was a little disappointed in the capabilities of the aircraft, right? Because mm. In the United States, every training iteration we ever did anywhere, whether it was the Rangers, the SEALs, uh, anybody, it was like you could whatever you could put inside a Chinook, you could carry, right? And and it wouldn't be a big deal. You get to Afghanistan, instead of the you know, 40, 50 guys they're used to putting in a Chinook, we're telling them you can have like six, eight, you know, something like that. And you know, same problem that Don had with the Apaches, right? The the high altitude really limits the aircraft's capabilities. And The other thing was fuel, right? So in order to go as far as we needed to, you had to do air refueling. And the problem is we had kind of self-determined that 6,000 feet was as high as we wanted to air refuel. Well, we were going to have to refuel at uh, 12, 13, 14,000 feet. And we didn't even know if it was possible. Wow. So, but that all had happened in the first uh, three weeks, right? So uh, what was it? Early October, we were in Afghanistan. Jeez. And that when you went down to Tampa to plan, do you remember anybody having any crazy ideas that uh, you're like, what the, like, um, like no. or was it, was it, it was all just, pretty straightforward? We're going to bomb, 
bomb them, right? The idea was to bomb the Taliban so that we could get to bin Laden, right? Because they were protecting him. And nobody really knew. Like, I, I got to sit around with General Mulholland one day, and he he talked about, uh, he said, so, Chief, uh, we never got a chance to really talk. Uh, what did you think that first week or two, the first couple missions? And I said, well, sir, I, I didn't think I was going to live past the next mission. And he's like, no, really. I mean, no, really. Me and the other flight lead had talked about it. We honestly didn't think we would survive. We were pushing the aircraft to limits that we'd never been allowed to do during peacetime. And the equipment we were using was theoretically, you know, good. But uh, in training, it would fail routinely, like the multi-mode radar. Mm-hmm. And you had to deal with that. But, uh, yeah, we didn't think we were going to survive. You know, And he's like, wow, I, I didn't know that. And then he would say, you know, same thing happens with me. People ask about the campaign plan. I was like, there was no campaign plan. We just put teams in, let them do what they do, and we figured it out from there. You know, Jeez. I mean, that's we were all caught by surprise, as you know. Yeah, man. And I had uh, Scotty Neal and Mark Nooch on the podcast, and they're the uh, horse, horse soldier bourbon guys. For anybody that's uh, that's watching, you can see the horse soldier up there. Um, I have a lot, <laughs> a lot of it down here too. Um, <laughs> but uh, those guys said, you know, same thing. They thought they weren't coming back so many guys that's like my buddies that were on the bin laden raid like they thought it was a a one-way one-way deal um but uh, and they went anyway and you won anyway um that's uh so my hat is off to to you someone's uh, gotta go someone's gotta go and you're uh, you're in that position that's where you want to be you know you uh, we yeah, all wanted to be is. there everybody in special operations wanted to be there um because this was our because our before that we had those flashpoints we really we had desert one we had grenada we had panama we had uh, a little bit in the, the first gulf war and then mogadishu but flashpoints uh days you know maybe weeks if you're talking about just cause or something like that but uh but really flashpoints and hadn't had that sustained combat operation uh pace since vietnam now we now we do, but our our more recent experience was the flashpoint. So we thought we were going to miss it if we didn't get in there right away. If we weren't in that first wave with you in October of, uh, of two thousand one, like ah, missed it. But uh, obviously not the case. Um, and you went to K two first, right? Is that where you? Uh, I love your K two story about Ambien because I have a very similar one. Um, yeah. And uh, did go to K two as well. Probably slept in the same tents, the same cots, uh, just on the ground there, and uh, and then headed into for me anyway into Bagram after that because it was a lot later than when you guys were working out of there. But uh, what was that like heading heading over there and and getting off the aircraft and setting up your birds uh, and what's that like? You know, I, I tell you the um, so I, I mentioned we had the two task forces, right? So that was a total of, I think, 10 Chinooks were going to deploy by C-17. And we'd never done C-17s with MH-47s. We'd always had a load plan for C-5s, but the C-5s weren't considered uh, uh, capable of dealing with the air threat. You know, man pads were a big deal. And so they changed mid-course. So we went from, like, in our task force with four Chinooks and three DAPs, uh, we went from like five C seven C fives to like twenty one C seventeens. So Jeez. I tell you, the the Air Force logistics guys and our uh, air planners did an amazing job to get twenty one aircraft to K two like an hour apart, you know, or forty five minutes apart. And we would see each other in Italy. I think was where we stopped, or uh, or Turkey. I can't remember exactly now. But we would high five each other. You know, they, yeah. when the aircraft chalk would be going this way, we're going in. You know, use the bathroom, and they're putting gas in the aircraft. Yeah. And the other task force was going, you know, where they were going to to get on a ship. And, you know, I remember just thinking that, uh, you know, I can't believe 
this is is happening you know and this is back the, the c17s were brand new so they weren't breaking like the you know they do now oh and, do they now yeah the c5 uh, yeah, always broke like c5s they always they're seem to C5s break in hawaii that. though for us before september 11th the c5 always seemed to break in hawaii or florida <laughs> like someplace that wasn't horrible to break down in i don't know why that well is. for us it was always dover because you took off out of campbell headed for the middle east which was our area of operations and it you went right over dover which was their home base mm. so they would land in there to fix whatever problems they had. And we'd have to spend the night in some crappy barracks, you know, while they're at home, Yeah, you know, and uh, we kind of <laughs> thought that was going to happen, but the C-17s were amazing. And, uh, you know, we were landing in there. Uh, we actually went zero G's because they didn't know what the threat was. So they're just, you know? boom. And and it wasn't just Al Qaeda. You had the, the IMU, which was the terrorist organization in Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan. I don't remember yeah. what that stands for, but yeah. they're like the Chechens and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, Islamic movement Uzbekistan, I think. Yes, yeah. yes, that's it. But they were a big deal. I mean, we ended up fighting them in Afghanistan at some point on a couple of missions. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, we we're just after retribution. You know, nine eleven had happened just you know days ago. And here we are about to take the fight to the enemy. And uh, it felt pretty good, actually. Man. After, and you're, you're, so this is like new territory. So you land, you get the birds out. Do all of them make it or all of them operational? Or anyone need any yeah. work right now? They out? got there. Yeah. Um, everything went perfect. I mean, we uh, we downloaded the build-up crews, built the aircraft up. You know, it's, it's classified how long it takes, but it is not long at all. Mm-hmm. And it would really surprise you. And uh, they, they test fly them, and it's time to go. And as soon as we had two built up, they started bombing, which was not our plan. Our plan was we wanted all four plus the, the DAPs uh, because, you know, the DAPs couldn't go the same places we could go. Yeah. Uh, but they would try. You know, those guys got, you know, brass cojones. And uh, let me tell you when, you, when you're going into Afghanistan or some other country and you test fire, you know, with the miniguns, you could think, you think, know, and then you could see the DAP 30 millimeter hitting just off your nose. And, uh, you know, it said that 30 millimeter HEDP. And uh, it's pretty impressive, actually. Jeez. So what's your first, uh, your first mission uh, out there? Yeah. So my first mission uh, operational was the horse soldier infill. And so this is, uh, there actually was another team, uh, ODA 555 known as Triple Nickel. Triple Nickel. Technically was the first guys in, right? Well, first SF team in, I should say. There were some agency guys went in on one of the undapped Blackhawks. But and I flew on that mission as well as their gas. Oh. And um, But as far as the SF teams, so remember I said that I moved across the street to the staff job and I was augmenting Bravo Company 2nd Battalion. And the guy that took my place got to be the first guy to go into Afghanistan, right? And I remember being pissed. It's like, I train these guys and now he's got to go. Right. And, you know, ironically, you know, 20 years later, we're still talking about my mission and not his. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so he he goes and they run into terrible, terrible weather. And he's got to go, he's going into the Panjshir Valley from Uzbekistan. So he's got to go to 21, 22,000 feet uh, to get over the mountains. Mm. And the weather is horrible right so he takes off they 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 run into the weather they can't get over it the radar can't help them because of performance issues and, and the rain and such so he turns around well the problem was that general dostum who i was going to support and the other guy's name was fahim so fahim was um masood's deputy mm, okay. so when masood is assassinated 
Fahim takes his place, but he's an asshole. Nobody likes him. He has zero personality. You know, Masood was like, you know, the, the lion of the pinch here. Yeah. And this guy's just a jerk, right? And he says, if I don't get my U.S. forces first, I will attack the other warlords, meaning ghost them, right? So, you know, technically I should just go, but now it's a political move. And they won't let me launch with the horse soldiers who aren't horse soldiers at that time. It's just 595. And until Triple Nickel gets in, right? So they try again the next night. So my mission rolls 24 hours. And they try again, run into the same weather. And they come back. And instead of being an understanding teammate, you know, I'm figuring, like you said, the flashpoint. I'm like, he's going to get in. They're going <laughs> to think it's too hard. And I won't get to go. And I got to listen for 20 years. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was a big so, worry. That was a big worry uh, across yeah. all, all well, the special operations teams. He comes back in, and I'm like, "Why didn't you try this or this or this?" And and he's he's pretty upset. I mean, he basically just almost died yeah. in the mountains, and we're shoving each other. I mean, we're like, we're about to go at it. You know, someone and somebody breaks the tension from with a Doctor Strangelove comment. It's like, gentlemen, no fighting in the war room. <laughs> like, okay, right. So anyway, the next night, so I'm going to roll again and uh, be delayed in another 24 hours thinking he's going to get in and I won't. And um, a funny story is there's a, there's a major who's the, uh, the S3, the operations guy, and he's, he's working the day shift. We're all at night. Phone rings in the planning area. He answers it. He's like, you know, task force dagger. And the, the woman on the other end says, please hold for the secretary. He's like, secretary who? This is Donald Rumsfeld. Who am I talking to? <laughs> He's like, you tell Mulholland you get those teams in tonight. And I mean all of them. Period. And he hung his, hangs up the phone. Wow. So <laughs> okay. the calculus just changed, right? Yeah. So now we're all going. But the problem is we were operating in teams of two. But the guys going to over 20,000 feet needed uh, the additional Chinook for, uh, for payload. So I got to go by myself, which, you know, it's one of those things that, in the books, right? You're a thriller mm-hmm. writer, you always write about the the single Chinook, alone and unafraid kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And except they added the Daps to be my wingman, which really uh, they couldn't go all the way anyway. They were just going to go as far as they could. Yeah. And if I got shut down, they're really just more like a revenge weapon. Yeah, you know, they're not really protecting me. Yeah. But uh, so off we go. We run into the same weather, and they had to turn around. And let me tell you, those guys got uh, they're some brave men. They sucked up, you know, right up on my wing, and they couldn't see the aircraft. They could only see the heat from the engine. So if I increased power to climb over a mountain, the engine plume would grow, and they would match my power. Wow. And they were doing that for about 10 minutes, and they finally cried uncle and said, ah, we can't do this. Yeah. And they turned around, and I went the rest of the way by myself. And back then, wow. you know, nowadays, missions are, are awesome, right? You've got all these overhead assets in the stack. You've got ISR, uh, you know, Predator. You're not allowed to go without that stuff. There's none, <laughs> there was none of that back then. I My SATCOM was intermittent because uh, we had a low angle SAT and in the mountains you couldn't hit it. And uh, so we just disappeared for a couple hours as far as they were concerned. Wow, no way. That's and then crazy. how are you navigating? How do you, and for those listening, I got, uh, but <laughs> you can't throw a rock in here without hitting the horse soldier. <laughs> but uh here's one right here for those that are uh there there's one of the bottles anyway so you can see that they got and they made this mold with world trade center steel so there's world trade center steel that uh, makes the mold so this isn't world trade center steel but what makes this mold is um and it's uh anyway 
Pretty cool. Pretty cool right there. Yeah. <laughs> what time, is, are, what time is it anyway? Awesome I stay in contact with Pour them. a little bit in my coffee or something. Um, <laughs> but no, that's, I, so how did you, how did you navigate in there then? Are you, you have a mapping compass and uh, yeah, terrain no, navigation now, or what do you? Times have changed. So now I have dual GPS. Oh, so now you have GPS. Uh, okay. Navigation Got it. systems. And what happens is the battalion commanders in my jump seat. So there's, you know, two seats next to each other, the pilot and co-pilot. And the battalion commander's sitting just behind me. So he's doing, like Don was saying, he's kind of keeping track of the whole situation while I'm dealing with the aircraft, you know, and, and, and doing my thing. And, uh, you know, when the daps turn around, he goes, well, Al, what do you think? I'm like, sir, I think we just TF, right, which is terrain following radar, which in peacetime we've never been allowed to do for real. You know, you could do it, you know. You just too dangerous. It, but you never got to do it when you couldn't see out the window. Yeah. You know, is that was like a simulator thing. So here we are doing it for real. And uh, we hadn't really planned the routing for that. And that's that's its whole whole thing. But I couldn't believe he, see, I didn't know anything about the Rumsfeld phone call. So I thought he just had me turn around. But he let me go and off we went using every tool that that aircraft had to offer. It was it was wow. amazing. And how many guys do you have in the back? So the, I had the whole team. So I had 12, 12 SF you know, green berets from 12 uh, strong five, nine, five. Yep. And we originally had them broken up into two aircraft. So there was six and six. Yeah. They, you know, they're built that way to be fully redundant, right? If one aircraft goes down, the other one can continue with the mission. In this case, we had to not only take all of them, but to compensate for the additional weight, the other six guys and their equipment, I had to lose fuel. So that meant I had to air refuel on the way in and on the way out which is something it was sacrilege in planning at the time. And now it's the norm, wow. but uh, yeah. Jeez. And so you drop them off and you confirm where you are, GPS, they confirm where they oh, are, yeah. so, GPS. You know, there's an agency guy with the Afghans, with the Northern Alliance, but you know, he didn't have an IR strobe, no laser, none of that stuff we're used to nowadays. Amazing. So you got it. They sent me like a, uh, a six digit grid right? Which is not all that accurate. <laughs> and so here I am flying through the mountains, can't see out the window. I get the last ridge line, And oh, by the way, just north of their position is a ZPU 23-4, which is a 23 millimeter cannon with four barrels, right? And so they're, it's just behind a little hill. So if I fly too far, you know, like if I come down off the ridge and I fly too far, they're going to get a beat on me. And that's just going to turn me into Swiss cheese and it's not going to be good. So we we break out of the clouds on that final ridge and we drop down and do what we call S turns to lose altitude. We had like five thousand feet to lose in a half mile, Jeez. which is you know, it's tough. I mean, uh, and we did it, you know. And we landed in this talcum powder uh, dust, you know, because it was like a farm field. And uh, you know, here's all these guys. When the dust starts to settle, you can see all these guys with AK forty sevens and those pacoles, you know, the the flat yeah. hats. And uh, I was like, well, we're here. You know, I don't, I don't know if they're who we want, right? So yeah. Mark Nudes, the team leader walks off. They hug a little bit, you know, whatever they, you know, a little man love they do. And uh, he comes by the window, the the chin bubble in the aircraft, and he just gives me a thumbs up. And it's like, okay, we're out of here. And we wow. just took off and went back the same way and did the same thing on the way out. Then we did that night after night after night, you know, which is why we didn't think we were going to survive because, you know, 
Gosh. Was, was that first one the worst weather or was it, did it stay that way? It wasn't, was... no, it wasn't the worst weather. It's just, it was the first time we were exposed to it. Wow. So we were learning what the actual limitations of the aircraft were. Cause you know, you had paper charts. We didn't even have computerized uh, performance planning back then. It was all paper charts. And uh, we would, we would scan the maps uh, looking for uh, spot elevations and contour intervals, right. To figure out how high we'd have to fly. And you, a lot of times, you know, um, on a, on a chart, Don knows this, you have these, what we call quadrangles and each one, it's like little squares on the map and they have a, a, a large digit in there, like a number. And that's the highest elevation in that square. So it might be, you know, 16,000 feet, but based on what I'm carrying, I can only fly at 10,000 feet. So you got to find somewhere in that block where you can get down to 10,000 feet. And if you can't, you got to lose weight, you know, and the SF guys, all of our, what we call customers were pissed at us for about two years until they learned, you know, because this, the, the Delta guys were in the same boat. We did Tora Bora and then you know, dev grew came over, replaced them. Same thing. You know, they were used to, well, I can have 50 guys back here. No, you can have five you know, or 10 or whatever the number is. And wow. uh, it took a while to, to educate them on that and for us to learn. Yeah. And how long are you doing, doing those types of missions before it, before it shifts uh, down to Tora Bora a couple months later? Yeah. So um, that's, uh, so that's October 19th. And then we were in Tora Bora, I believe in late November. And, uh, so that's out of operating out of Bagram, mm -hmm. which really is the most strategic, you know, location in that entire country. It's insane. They gave that up first. That should have been the last place to leave yep. from. But uh, yeah, so we were down there. It was just it was two Chinooks. Uh, fifth group was running the area, and we had uh, Delta Force as our CAG as our uh, as our customer. And then we just we had a uh, so Bin Laden got across the border right there around Christmas time. And uh, we thought he'd come back. And so Fob Shkin, I believe it is, if anybody up there yeah. knows what that is, that was actually a Bin Laden compound that we were going to go hit. And uh, it was amazing. We brought all kinds of assets in. I was the flight lead on it. I had three AC-130s, which at the time was all of them wow. you know, in the Middle East. <laughs> You know, they were going to do like concentric orbits. Yeah, and awesome. It was really, I had a seven MH-53, which was the Air Force helicopters at the time, uh, back when they still had rotor wings off, plus our seven Chinooks, and then a bunch of other, you know, special assets. And uh turned out it was a dry hole. He wasn't there. Uh, as as most of the Bin Laden missions, and even in Neptune Spear, they were afraid that uh, that was going to be a dry hole because uh, it had always been before. But, you know, once that, so that mission right there drew, everybody to Bagram and we never left. Yeah. Well, you know, we did. Yeah. But all the missions started out of there right then. Yeah. And in early December, when you're getting those guys in, um, do you remember at the time them calling back and asking for either 10th mountain or Rangers or somebody to come in as a blocking force to, to block passes into Pakistan. Do you remember any of those discussions right there? Yeah, I, I was part of, I was part of all that as the, as a flight lead in the one sixties, you're part of the, you know, the strategic and the tactical level planning. So I was in the, all the video conferences where they were talking about bringing the Rangers in and, uh, DOD wanted to keep the footprint down, or CENTCOM did, so they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't bring in the conventional forces uh, to do it. They were convinced that the SF guys could do it with Afghans. And as we found out, uh, Tom Greer wrote a book about it. Uh, he went by the, the pseudonym uh, Dalton Fury, 
and uh, he was he was the Delta Troop commander. Yeah, Bin Laden. And Bin Laden, yeah. like small arms range away, and then the Afghans that led them in turned on them. It was a big you know Mexican standoff kind of thing, and uh, I went and pulled them out uh, about an hour or two later. They were pissed, and uh, I mean they they almost had him. Yeah, you know he was injured anyway, which was good. But, uh, I know that part is just so hard. It's like we took the, and I say we, our strategic level leaders seem to have taken the wrong lessons from the Soviets. Uh, big footprint, small print, full print, a little bit of imperial hubris thrown in there, a little ego thrown in there. Yeah. Um, and of course, what's the, the irony is we balloon to these gigantic numbers just a couple of years later. Um, and if we had gone in there at least put in some sort of a blocking force that had some, uh, some meat on the bones like 10th mountain or Rangers or whoever else to block those passes, you know, yeah. who knows what, what could have happened or yeah, have yeah. relied on the yeah. Afghan partners there, uh, as much as we did in that in December of 2001, that might've been a next, a different next 20 years. Yeah. And we always thought we were leaving right after that, you know, it's like, all right, we get this Torboro, we leave. You know? And then it's, Oh wait, the 101st is doing Operation Anaconda. We you gotta do that first, then you can leave. And then, you know, we just didn't leave until the very end. And you stayed. That's you're you're still on your first post 9/11 deployment right here, October yeah. through December, and then you're there into February, uh, March, March, April, March. Yeah. and that's uh, and that's Anaconda, and that's Neil Neil Roberts and Roberts Ridge yeah. and and all of that. What do you remember about the planning for uh, for that? Well, the interesting thing is. We really weren't part of it. It was a conventional operation, you know, kind of like Red Wings, right? Uh, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, uh, is that it was a conventional operation. And the only part that we originally played in it was that we would uh, infill on several mountaintops coalition special forces. So, the, you know, the Germans, the Canadians, uh, U.S. forces, that kind of stuff. And what they would do is yet what they call it the hammer and the anvil, right? So that's the that's the anvil, right? And then the hammer is a the main force would drive the Al Qaeda and the Taliban fighters toward the mountains, and then they would call for accurate fire. Right. So, uh, my job in this whole thing, I didn't even do that. It was, uh, the other flight lead that did the, uh, five, five, five mission. My job was, we thought bin Laden and Zawahiri were there. So the dev grew, uh, guys, uh, Brit Slavinsky, I think, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was, my guy, if you will, we were the HVT QRF, or not QRF, but HVT team, right? So high value target. So Bin Laden or Zawar here shows up. We're the guys are going to go go schwack him. And uh, it became obvious that they weren't there in the first, you know, 24, 48 hours. And instead, you know, the, they were getting their ass handed to them the 101st, right? Because they delayed the operation by like two weeks because of weather. And in the meantime, Everybody knew about it because they were telling the NGOs, hey, you might want to leave two weeks from now, you know, like Friday, you know, March 3rd, we're going to come in here with a big force, right? So all of the potential landing zones had been used by the Soviets before and the fighting positions were used by the Mujahideen. So they were all, you know, like they had range cards, you know, dust them off. Okay, put a mortar right here and, you know, 2,000 meters away. And so they got in there and they just got their ass handed to them with, with indirect fire. And so they needed eyes on prominent feature that could see all these areas. And one and it was Tucker Gar. So who wasn't working? Me and my SEALs, right? So I go down, pick up Britt and the guys, and, you know, we do our thing. And that's how we ended up getting drawn into it. But there really wasn't much for us other than that. Yeah. 
And did you think when you when you get up there uh, on that particular mission with uh, with Neil Roberts and and the crew? Um, I forget. Did you get? Did you take rounds? Did you get hit, or was one fly right by? Or what was what happened in that? Uh, no, we uh, we were actually on the ground, and the seals were just about to go off the because we were <laughs> we landed, and you know uh, back then once again technology at the time right so the team leader was the only one on helicopter comms right so he had a headset mm -hmm. he had to take off the headset to put on his pelters to talk to the team right so the team isn't communicating with him so he takes off the headset he's going to leave and i go wait 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 there's a dishka just out the window <laughs> there's nobody on it but there's a heavy machine gun right and oh there's a donkey tied to a tree you know there's somebody up here right and he goes okay got it we're taking the lz and he takes the headset off as he's transitioning to his pelters, a guy stands up with a uh, with no weapon at the time, and my left gunner says, "Sir, there's a guy out the left, uh, ten o'clock. He just disappeared." And the rules of engagement had changed because there was a fratricide incident the day before with Neil Harriman. Uh, uh, that was his name. Is uh, Army Green Beret was leading the main hammer, if you will, the assault force. And uh, they changed it to you had to get shot at before you could return fire. So, which sounds chivalrous, you know, hey, that's great. <laughs> I let him shoot at me first, but, you know, at point blank range. Uh, so I told the guy, I said, all right, if he pops up again, that's hostile intent. Kill him. And the guy popped up again, just a little bit off to the side with an RPG, let it fly. And I saw that damn thing come in. <laughs> it's slow motion, like in, in the movie Black Hawk Down, they show the thing coming in it's like time seems to slow down and it hit us in just such a spot you know a foot further forward it would have hit the flight control closet which would have we would just come apart right there a foot further aft it would have hit the main fuel tank and we would have blown up that would have been that but it hit right through right there and it actually took out three electrical systems at the same time three redundant systems which took out the mini guns which at the time were ac powered electric off the main aircraft power now they're batteries and you know, stuff like that. But so now we're defenseless. All of the displays in the cockpit just went blank. Wow. There's no radios. There's no nothing. And you can hear the aircraft getting hit with the machine gun fire. And uh, now I'm wondering, you know, what are, what are the SEALs doing? Did they get off? Are they on? Did they get off and want to get back on? Or are they on and want to get back off? And uh, I hear from the back, the crew chief in the very back, yelling, fire in the cockpit. Go, go, go. You know, not on the intercom, but I can hear that over the mm -hmm. noise of everything. So I took off, and in the process, uh, Neil was on the very back at what we call the ramp hinge, right? So the ramp comes down, and he was standing, like, right on the part of the ramp that comes down. And uh, he got shot in the leg, in the, in the femoral artery. And I think that, plus the weight of his rock and the fact that the ramp came down, it was all slippery with oil and hydraulic fluid. And he just, he fell about 12 feet to about a, yeah, about thigh deep snow, and then he uh, he fought for his life as we, you know, disappeared down the hill. Man, did that RPG explode or did it pass through? Like, oh yeah, it exploded. Oh, my. Uh, so the the two front gunners and slab were in that area. They were stunned, like they couldn't communicate with me, tell me what's going on. You know, so we're. I think I lost an engine, so I'm diving down the mountain trying to regain speed. So I can keep the rotors spinning. And the idea is I'm going to crash at the bottom of the hill. And then uh, 
the two guys up front kind of came to their senses, you know, it's like some out of a, you know, a cartoon. They blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. We're okay. Uh, both engines are running. I'm like, are you sure? Like, yes, we can hear the engines running, but I have no displays in the cockpit to tell me that. So I level off the aircraft and I'm thinking, okay, now we just got to, cause the dish was shooting at us now. Yeah. And so my crew member that yelled go is on the M60 machine gun. We have one of those in the back and he's returning fire with that. And then I can't move the controls anymore because uh, we took some hydraulic damage. And now you cannot fly a Chinook without hydraulics. It just doesn't work. And uh, then they told me Neil had fallen out. And I was like, give me a head count. I'm like, we don't need to give you a head count. We watched him go out the back. And I, I had to be in shock, I guess, because I, I insisted, give me a head count. Yeah. I want to know how many people are back there. And, you know, they, okay, you know, minus one. But uh, then that crew chief that had been returning fire noticed that the other back crew chief had fallen out of the aircraft. He grabbed onto Neil, you know, trying to do, you know, Sylvester Stallone kind of thing. You know, hey, I got you. Now he gets, he gets pulled right out of the aircraft, but he's on a harness. So the guy in the back named Dan, uh, he gets back there and he, he pulls him up by the harness. And then they tell me, you know, hey, he's, he's out, you know. But so then... I can't move the controls and that guy, Dan. So not only did he return fire with the M60 and pull PD up, but he serviced the hydraulics, you know, he had the presence of mind, you know, to, you know, a, a can of hydraulics is like this, like a small coffee can. And he, he opens it up with a handheld, uh, you know, can opener and uh, pours it in. It's got a little tiny handle, you know, like this big, you know, yeah. it's like, you got to pump it like 50 times to get an ounce in there. And he's doing that, you know, he's just, and the controls come back. So now I got to go back and get Roberts. And uh, so now I get the controls again. I turn back around toward the mountain. And then as we level off for the approach, the controls don't move again. So I'm like, oh, guys, I'm sorry. We're done. You know, we're going to crash into the top of the mountain now. And uh, he pumped the, another can of fluid in. And I was like, all right, we cannot. It's lasting about 50 seconds each can. So you know, I turned to make uh, landing zone where you put one of the other SEAL teams, uh, Mako 2-1, and uh, set up a rate of descent and speed that if it locked up again, I was hoping at the bottom, you know, we might survive, you know. Uh, and as we got to the bottom, I was about uh, 20 feet or so off the ground from where I wanted to land, and the aircraft started to slide to the right, and I couldn't control the, the cyclic anymore. So the aircraft is in what we call an uncommanded slide. I can look out the right and I can see there's a hill and we're going to hit it, you know, and we're going to just roll over and boom, you know, like in the movies. And, uh, but there's a, also a saying, right, Don, never quit flying the aircraft. Yeah. And uh, I was able to, I, I shoved in a little right pedal and the nose swung around and we hit the hill uh, straight instead of uh, sliding. And then I had one more push in the uh, the power controls and we settled right there on a, on a big slope. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, I was amazed we were alive. I remember sitting there thinking, wow, oh, I'm alive. You know, we shut down the aircraft, we got out, set up a perimeter, and that's when uh, Slab came up with a plan to go back in to get uh, try to get Neil. And they went on foot from there? Is that? No. They, we were on the ground about 45 minutes, and my wingman, Razor 04, uh, didn't know where we were because we went to separate landing zones. And then we had a, a, a rendezvous point further up north. And what I told him was, 
when you get there, start your clock. 15 minutes goes by. If I don't show up, check with me on the radio, see if I'm out there, and then leave mm. because you won't have the gas to get home if you don't. Right. And I'm on my own. And the same thing with him. You know, I'm going to show up. If he doesn't show up, start the clock. I'll leave in 15 minutes. So he does that. And there's an AC 130 overhead now. And uh, thanks to John Chapman. And uh, they, Chapman coordinates our pickup. Right. So Razor 04 comes to pick us up. And then we reposition because they were going to leave us there, the air crew, and the SEALs were just going to go back up. But there was uh, supposedly enemy activity headed our way, you know, radio intercepts that they knew where we were and they were coming. And the AC was actually cleared to engage. Uh, ultimately, I think those were friendlies. Mm-hmm. But it's a good thing they just pulled us out of there. They weren't sure. Yeah. So they flew us, you know, five minutes away to Gardez. We got off and then Razor 04 took them back in. And that's where uh, Slab and Chapman both earned the Medal of Honor. Man, that is incredible. Mm-hmm. And then what happened to your aircraft? Did you, uh, did you go, you go fix it or do you like haul it out of there? What do you, what, yeah, do you destroy so, it? What do you do? So in the first, remember this is the first part of the war. So task force sword actually had five MH 47s taken out of the fight. They were shot up so bad. They had to be sent back to Campbell to, uh, get rebuilt. So we only had 22 of them. And, and now we just had, I just got shot down. Razor 01, who came to help me, got stuck on the top of the mountain. He basically got hit in the same place, except the only difference was I was about 75 feet forward, and I was able to lift and dive down the hill. They were on the other side of the hill and pancaked on. They were stuck there. And that's where the whole uh, – where Don's friend, Nate, yeah. is, uh, has his story. But so, and then Razor 04, when he brought the SEALs back in, got shot up so bad that that aircraft, so we just lost three aircraft from the fight and the other five. So uh, the Air Force decided to take out Razor 01 after the fact. And uh, the other aircraft were returned to service. My aircraft was in the base of the valley there, just south of Gardez. And they they actually got, um, a CH-47 was capable of picking up that aircraft after it's stripped down. Mm. But the army, the army unit, the 101st was like, we're not doing that just to save an aircraft. And like, we need this thing back, you know, and they just didn't seem to understand that the brought the big, the big scene, you know, the yeah. big, what's going really on big picture. So they, they hire a former Soviet uh, MI 26, right. It actually had been on the discovery channel a couple of years earlier, lifting uh, a frozen woolly mammoth out of the tundra and so they fly this thing in we put one of our warrant officers who used to be a uh, a 10th group sf guy back in the cold war so he spoke russian and uh he's on this aircraft and these guys are like drinking vodka while they're flying and <laughs> picking up you know they gotta let the engines cool off so they Jeez. they land like uh major jimmy engines must cool he says we we have refreshments so they have a couple of vodkas <laughs> you know borscht and uh, it took them like three different uh, fuel stops to get it back to Bagram. Jeez. That aircraft was then flown back to Fort Campbell. Boeing came down and fixed it. it took about a year. Jeez. And uh, when that aircraft was returned to service, they put it back to Bagram. I was the first one to fly it in combat again, or to, really to fly it, uh, other than the maintenance guys. And what was kind of funny is I was actually down in Salerno with it, uh, with the dev group guys, a different squadron. 
And uh, the master chief was, you know, we were waiting to do a vehicle interdiction. So we're just sitting around waiting for the bad guys to make their move. And he's telling his stories, you know, as a master chief can, right? You know, <laughs> ah, there I was, you know, on the high seas. <laughs> and so he runs out of his stories and he goes, uh, so Al, you ever, uh, you ever crash? I was like, well, yeah, actually once. Matter he's like, oh, have. tell me about it. He said, well, it was this aircraft right here. And uh, <laughs> he kind of looked at it and he goes, what? I go, yeah, I was shot down and uh, this is the Anaconda aircraft. And he, you know, all the SEALs were kind of like, you know, had to touch it. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, oh, you know, it's like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that aircraft was back in the global war on terror, you know, uh, based on some dedication of some people to actually recover the aircraft. They had the foresight to do it. Yeah. And then the brake, you know, the maintenance guys went out there on their own. They had like uh, one SEAL EOD guy with them. And uh, they went out and the EOD guy cleared the thing, made sure nobody had messed with it. And they did an analysis of it. And uh, it was funny because the, the regimental commander, the 160th commander, got the pictures of it. And he's like, it looks fine. Can't you just fly it back? Yeah. I remember this. It's like, you know, I'd have flown it back if I could have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they said, no, no, it's going to have to come back by, you know, truck or slings. But, Jeez. Uh, wow. And after that, when you guys uh, – or in Gardez, you guys disembark and um, do you keep tabs on what's going on with, uh, oh, yeah. uh, with, with, with Slab and with Chapman and the team and yeah. the guys that are still I up there? I found my way to the, the command center, right? So Gar the FOB at Gardez looks like the Alamo. I've been there, mind, yeah. Opinion, right? And uh, all of the shooters there uh, moved out on the British Chinooks in preparation for going to do a rescue on top of the hill, right? Mm. So they left... There was like uh, one SEAL. I think he was like a lieutenant commander. It was Hal. It was not his name. And uh, a weather guy from the Air Force. A couple of OGA representatives, other government agencies that were doing some intel stuff and a communications guy and my guys. And then when Razor 04 comes back, so you get two air crews there. We're well armed. We all have long guns, a lot of ammunition in our ammo rocks. We got grenades. We got AT4s, and we still have two M60s with thousands of rounds of ammo for the miniguns, mm. which is compatible with the the 60. So we go ahead and uh, create a defensive position there because there are radio intercepts that the bad guy, the Taliban, knows that the shooters have left, and all that's left is us. So they're coming to take the fob, and uh, Hal creates you know, this, uh, in-depth, you know, defense It's like something out of a movie here. We're going to take you guys that aren't real shooters. Yeah. You can shoot <laughs> you're not shooters, you know, and we're, you're going to defend this base. And, uh, that's what I always thought should have been a movie, you know? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Oh my gosh. That is crazy. So are you keeping tabs on then what's happening? Yeah. So, so I'm listening to the, the SATCOM and, uh, you know, the, the fact that the AC-130 left, as Razor Zero One was coming in, had a big influence. They were supposed to do pre-assault fires. There was a lot of confusion, a lot of communications fratricide, right? A lot of jamming going on back then, and uh, just a lot of confusion. And unfortunately, they end up at the top of the hill. Uh, we're listening to those communications. Nate Self, the platoon leader, you know, he's trying to get exfilled. And they were this close to launching a daylight exfil. And then uh, some... Fighters popped up and they shot uh, Jason Cunningham and uh, our medic, uh, Corey. And uh, as soon as that happened, I, I looked at the guy sitting there, the OGA rep, and I said, they're not going to go now. 
we've lost three aircraft in that same LZ. You know, uh, they're not going to do it until it's night. And Nate was trying like hell. I mean, he was very compelling, you know, to get someone to come in and they just couldn't do it. You know, they weren't going to lose a fourth aircraft and crew, you know, to, you know, a couple of guys being shot. And then at first dark, they went back and uh, got everybody that was still alive and uh, yeah. all the KMAs. Nate wrote a book called Two Wars about that. And it, right. and it just, uh, it tore him up because he was as a, as a ranger was very confident that he had secured the terrain at that point and could bring another bird in. And the decision was being made thousands of miles away and he had to just sit there and watch those guys die. Yeah. So it was terrible. Man. Yeah. yeah so many you know, lessons and, from that one. You gotta remember this is also the first real engagement, first large scale engagement for all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we've been shot at every night we went out, you know, uh, we had 16, Man pads fired at us over the course of the first couple months. A lot of RPGs, a lot of 23 millimeter, but we'd never been hit. None of us had been hit. And now all of a sudden you've got guys on the ground, the Rangers, you know, you got to love the Rangers. I mean, they're just amazing. And Nate's a, such a good guy, you know, and uh, it's hard to be the first because everybody goes, well, you're, you know, you're a, a SEAL, you're a Ranger, you're a 160th guy. You should know this stuff. It's like, no, no. You can know that now, five, mm -hmm. 10 years later, but at the time we're still learning these lessons. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or my, uh, commanding officer at SEAL team two was essentially ops, um, for, uh, back at Bagram for that. So mm -hmm. when he came back from, from that, I showed up at SEAL team two and he passed on some of uh, his lessons, his four battlefield expectations for us all came from this, uh, this operation. And I, I think of them still to this day. We've been to my novels actually, but, uh, when is the next time you see slab then after, after this? Yeah, so I see him uh, the next day, and uh, it was interesting because we hadn't talked since you know, the the shoot down. And it was funny because, you know, when we're sitting there waiting for Razor Four to come get us, you know, I mean, I've never been on the ground in combat before. I mean, sure, we've trained a little bit, you know, I'm good with a rifle, but I don't know anything about you know flanking maneuvers or any of that stuff you guys do, you know. And uh, I, I run up to him, and, and I'm out of breath. I mean, we're at like. 6,500 feet MSL, uh, I mean, sea level. And so I'm out of breath. And uh, I remember thinking, should I be moving like tactically, you know, like kind of, <laughs> you know, at the ready, you know, all Three sort of stuff. Five second oh, rushes. Safety off, safety off, safety off. Like, like, yeah, I leave the safety on so I don't shoot the wrong person. And I just start running normal. And I come up to him, I'm way out of breath. And he just looks at me and he goes, breathe. <laughs> he goes, just breathe, breathe normal. We're okay. He goes, look, you get your machine gun over there. We got an AC-130 overhead. We're fine. We're okay. I'm like, oh, okay. Which is funny because I used that same line like the next day. There was a journalist that got stopped at a, a checkpoint and somebody dropped a grenade in it. And uh, she ended up, she didn't live. And I actually uh, corresponded with her a couple of, uh, about a year ago, I guess. And, but they bring her to the FOB. And the weather guy is the guy that goes out to check on her. And he comes in, he's freaking out. He's like, sir, sir, you know, the, the journalist, ah, oh, she got blown up and blood everywhere. And I was like, hey, they grabbed him by the collar. He's like, breathe. I said, what? He said, breathe, just breathe. Yeah. We got a medic. We're going to, we, and our medic actually saved her. Uh, but it, it's interesting how that mentality, you know, he transferred that to me. I got to use it on somebody else. Yeah. Who knows? 
you know? Yeah. Someone might be using it after hearing this, this podcast. <laughs> um, and then from Gardez, do you go back to Bagram and you have a, a debrief about uh, yeah. everything that happened? Yeah. We do one of those critical stress, critical stress debriefs, you know, like the chaplain, a psychologist come in mm. they're asking us, you know, some things and, uh, you know, it was tough hearing, you know, the, the crew from the, uh, from Razor Zero One, you know, talking about, you know, my friend Don, who was the air mission commander, he's a CW5, Chief Warrant Officer 5. Uh, he, what an amazing guy he is. You know, he crawled under machine gun fire to get Phil Svitak's wedding band, right? So Phil was the crew chief that was killed on the infill. Uh, he was on the minigun when he got shot. And, uh, they knew that an infill or an exfill was coming, a rescue, and uh, or at least they thought there was. And so here are the Rangers fighting this machine gun fire, you know, just go, trading back and forth. And he sees Phil's body in the snow and he can see his wedding band. He's like, his wife's going to want that. And he freaking low crawls under machine gun fire just to get his, his wedding band. So we were listening to these kind of stories and it was tough. And then we were, we, that was supposed to be our last mission there anyway. Mm. Uh, and we were doing a rip, a relief in place with our sister company. And uh, so they were just getting there. And about a week later, we uh, we left back to K2, packed up our aircraft and went back to the States. And I was back in Afghanistan in, uh, so that was March. I was back in Afghanistan in August. Wow. Uh, with that, the other company. No kidding. And it just never stopped. I mean, I, I think I did 17 deployments uh, over the course of 10 years. That's but, insane. you know, here's the thing. Uh, you never wanted to go home. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And I don't mean like you didn't want to go home, but we always knew where bin Laden was. And I don't mean like we knew the house. But if you, you know, laid a map out, put your hand on it, the size of that palm print was where we, we kind of really knew he was. Mm. And we used to build these bases along the border like uh, Carlson and, uh, you know, Salerno and JBAD. And the idea was that we would staff those up. And, and as soon as we knew for sure where he was, we would launch missions into Pakistan, right? And then, we, of course, we picked, pissed off the Pakis and they said, no, you can't do it. So we let those bases just dry up and, and blow away. And uh, obviously, that's why when they did get Neptune Spear, you know, they're like, well, we're just not going to tell them because they told us we can't, you know? Yeah. So. Although we used to, we used to dip into Pakistan. <laughs> so I've heard. A couple of times, uh, you know. <laughs> so I've heard. Uh, and what happened to Dan? So your right rear war door gunner, didn't he get shot in the head too? Didn't he get th like, through the helmet and around the... Yeah. Well, he got shot in the helmet. Yeah. Right? So it, one of the things that initially uh, we thought we were hit by two RPGs because he was standing toward the back and all of a sudden he's thrown to the floor. And so he thought he was thrown to the floor by a blast. But after we... We got exfilled off. Uh, we got rescued, and we're looking at our gear, and he's like, "Holy shit! There's a bullet in my freaking helmet." So he had been hit in the helmet. Now keep in mind, he's the guy that fired the M60 to suppress the dishka. He pulled Petey, the other crew member, inside while I'm diving down the hill. I mean, how he didn't just get ripped it, ripped to shreds by the trees because I was low, trying to keep the dishka from taking us apart. And then he put hydraulic fluid in. And he hurt his back on the uh, on my landing, which I thought was pretty damn good. But <laughs> he's back there, and he's like, uh, he, you know, giving me a hard time. He's like, "Damn, sir," he says, "Because of you, my back's all screwed up." And I was like, "No, it's your fault." Hey, what do you mean? How do you figure? 
I go, well, if you hadn't put hydraulic fluid in, we'd just be a smoking hole in your back. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, I never thought yeah. of it that way. Jeez. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how atmospherics of a gunfight, you know, if you take that helmet and put it on a range and, you know, go shoot it right here straight on, you know, it's probably going right through. But some whatever reasons, you know, wind, altitude, you know, humidity yeah. or lack thereof, all these different things, angles, you know, all these different things well, uh, affect a, a, a gunfight. And Chuck, Chuck from Razor 01 said that uh, – he he had a bullet go through the folds of his pants, right? Jeez. So you know you're sitting there with your feet on the pedals, and it went through the folds of the inner, like wow. his inner thigh. And he goes, he puts the 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 holes together. He's like, holy shit, it was headed right for home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny. you know. It, it's amazing how that's, uh, went, but it was headed right for home. It missed me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hear a story about that from the Vietnam guys. You know, they get back from a mission, and they're like, oh. And there's a bullet hole, like, you know, under the yeah. little part of their arm or in their leg or whatever. There's yeah. a slab was like yeah, that. Slab's geez. got a couple of holes in his uh, uniform from that day. Wow. Jeez. Incredible. Incredible. And Don, what are you doing during this time frame? So it was, and I have to have to preface this saying, I'm sorry, I got to jump off in, in 10 minutes, but it was, it was interesting because when, when uh, I was at Fort, at Fort Hood the second time, um, when, when, um, Afghanistan was kicked off and, and, and all of this was happening and we were training up to go by then we had veterans from the 101st that had been in that operation. And so up until that point, all the veterans were from like the first Gulf war where, uh, in army aviation, Dick Cody is famous because he is the one who commanded the 101st battalion where the Apaches went in and took out the early warning radar radar systems. So that the air force could come in and start it. And so those were the combat veterans we knew were people. And then all of a sudden we have these guys from the 101st and we did the, uh, my fellow, he wasn't a company commander yet. He was the assistant S3 and I was a troop commander, but he did a pilot's brief on that actual operation and showed everything that happened. And then he had, cause the Apache has, you're constantly recording video and audio. And so you can hear the radios and so he put the radios on and it was just, it was real for the first time. Like I'm listening to 101st guys who are running for their lives and they're trying to call in Apaches and they, they can't even catch their breath and they've lost call signs. They've lost all radio discipline. And you hear a guy, you know, probably an E4 who's literally like American Apache, American Apache, you have to put down suppressive fire. We're about to be overrun. And it was, and you can see, you guys have probably seen it. The, I think it was the brigade talk went in on top of the uh, side of the hill and there was Taliban already set there in a, in some, you know, Blackhawk with big brass cojones come in and pulled the staff off. Like as the Taliban was assaulting across that, that landing zone. And so that whole operation could have gone just tragically, tragically wrong in, in a whole bunch of different ways. And so that was our lead up to it, right? That was our, okay, we're actually going to war and guys have already gone there and figured out we're not invincible. You know, it's not like the not that the Gulf War was, but there were from an Apache perspective, there were a lot of times where you were shooting fish in a barrel. Right. Because you had incredible standoff. You were at you were on a desert. You were able to use the weapons platform the way it was supposed to be used in that same battle in Anaconda where those Apaches were learning how to 
to do diving fire for the first time. There was a guy I flew with an old crusty CW4. I think he was at the time. His name was Jim Hardy. And I'd flown in um, with him in Korea doing maintenance test pilot flights. And he thought he was coming back to Campbell. And I remember one of our flights, he told me, he's like, Don, I've done all the dangerous stuff I'm going to do. I'm going back to Campbell and retire. And that guy, no kidding, was flying through the valleys doing suppressive fire, got his tads blown off by an RPG, and he kept flying back and forth to draw, draw fire so that the other Apaches can roll in the position. And his wingman gets shot up, loses hydraulic fluid, lands, Jim lands next to him, takes the hydraulic fluid cans out of his own bird, fills it up, and then flies that Apache home. And so, you know, those were the stories that we were hearing as we were getting ready to go to Afghanistan. And so it was a total like mind shift of, of here's here's what this war is actually like. And we've got nine months to get ready for it because those guys have been fighting for a long time over there and they're pretty damn good at it. And that was kind of our mindset going into it. Our our squadron commander was a really good mili- military history um, guy. And so he would give us reading assignments like the bear came over the mountain and all the stories. And when you were flying, you could see the same you know, kill zones, the same ambush points that the Taliban had used. I mean, there were still burned out Russian vehicles there where you could see where they had done it. You know, people, a lot of times, I think that haven't been there, they call the Taliban cavemen or something like that. And they, they certainly weren't um, as technically proficient, but man, from a light infantry perspective, those guys were amazing. And they had been training for their entire lives against different armies to do that. And, you know, it was not, it's, it's always easy to look back and say, you know, of course, the outcome was destined that way. But I think the big takeaway I had is I was sitting in that pilot's brief is like victory is not assured here. Like the 101st Airborne is, you know, one of the elite general um, purpose ground forces and they almost got their ass handed to them. You know, it could have gone the other way where we lost a brigade commander and a brigade staff and stuff. And so it was a very, very... um bracing feeling i guess and and it helped certainly help motivate the training regiment you went through before deploying to afghanistan and what year do you first get there 2005 and okay. so so the other problem with afghanistan too is by then iraq was raging um in all its glory too and so you had a a i, I think for a long time right we lost our focus um strategically certainly to say what are we doing? Which theater is more important? You know, what what are we? I think even Rumsfeld was quoted as saying, you know, we did what we must in, I, in Iraq. So we did what we could in Afghanistan. And so it was it, w- it had definitely shifted where the main effort was now Iraq. And in Afghanistan, there was a lot of um, almost like pickup ball, like, OK, we're here. W- what do we do? You know, what are we the initial the initial mission was to go wipe out Al Qaeda, kill bin Laden and his guys and and move on. And now what do we do? What are we, what are we even, you know, what what are the targets we're going to pursue? What 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 are we doing? And so it was it was different for sure. Yeah. What's how long are you there before uh Red Wings kicks off? So I think we came in February and then uh so Red Wings was in yeah. And and Red Wings too was in the worst part of um, our flight envelope from uh, um, a weather perspective, right? Because it was hot and heavy and it took place in June and it was really high. And so there were a lot of, I'll, I'll probably has um, a different insight 
into it or, or a way it progressed. But it was a, a, originally supposed to be a conventional forces mission where the Marines were going to execute it. And then the SEALs uh, wanted a part of it as well. And then they brought the 160th and then us along for it. And so it was a little bit of a hodgepodge, I guess. Is that your recollection as well, Al? Yeah, the uh, the problem with the Marines is they didn't have air assets to carry them in. So we were going to use the 3rd Battalion 160th with their AWC Chinooks uh, to carry them all in. And they would fast rope in. And the idea was that they didn't want, because of that, you can't sneak up on them. You're going to hear the helicopters and they were afraid Ahmed Shah would run away. So they put the SEAL team above the, the village to watch and try to determine pattern of life and see if they could figure out what building he was actually in. And uh, obviously they were compromised and it went from there. But yeah, yeah. You, you get the right idea. Yeah. And for those who haven't listened to our last podcast, um, uh, what is your, what's your part of that mission? Are you, are you involved Don, in the, in the mission from the initial planning all the way through, or do you come out there? Um, what, what, what point do you get involved? Yeah. So it was more, um, the way that uh, our missions broke down from Apache perspective is you basically had three different mission sets. And so you had a direct action mission where you're involved in the planning and you go out and, um, and support the guys on the ground. You have the ring route missions where you're just providing escort for Blackhawks or Chinooks. And then you have the QRF missions. And so what was a little squirrely for us as um, aviation is general support aviation we didn't normally work uh, with special operations customers all that much. We did more in Afghanistan um, because there were so many of them and the 160th DAPs weren't there. But for Red Wings, my recollection is that, and this happened quite a bit, where the SEALs loved having us. And so they would try and come over and figure out a way to get Apache support for their operation. But a lot of times in the planning phases, we weren't part of it. And so it would be originally just the 160th would insert them and then they'd say hey can we get apache support or they would try and use the workaround to say we'll ask for the qrf birds once we're inserted and get them doing but then what happens is that those air crews aren't part of the planning process and so i was just on qrf that duty i knew about red wings and we had been briefed about it from an, an ancillary perspective but my recollection is there were not in the open, certainly not in the insertion, there were, was not direct Apache support that was allocated for that operation. And so it wasn't, my role didn't start until I think looking back when Mike Murphy made his famous call, uh, we got, we knew that they had, when I came on, uh, our QRF um, shift briefs were, I can't remember, like seven or six o'clock in the morning or something like that. And I remember during the shift brief, them saying, hey, there's a SEAL team that was inserted last night. We've lost contact with them. There might be something going down. Here's kind of what we know, but go on with your day. And then I think going back from the how the events happened, after Mike made his call, it it circled down to us. And then it become a, hey, there, there's the SEAL team is in contact right now. What we know is a grid coordinate, a call sign, and a frequency go. And so we left from Bagram, went down to JBAD, where we linked up with some Blackhawks that had the Marine QRF, and then we were going up into the mountain to try and find them. At the same time, um, the 160th guys were doing it with the rest of the SEAL QRF. 
And uh, yeah. I know you got a you got a jam here yeah. in like one minute, um, so we'll probably re- we'll revisit this then when you yeah, yeah. Uh, when you come back uh, for the, the your first Vince Flynn Mitch rap book next year. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so we'll uh, we'll do that. But uh, I don't I don't want to keep you from your next thing. But Al, can I keep you for a few more minutes? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having awesome. me, guys, dude. Hey, congratulations and congratulations on this. April 25th, bam, here it is. And uh, and then you can read Thanks, like 10 Jack. more of Don's books over the next year too. <laughs> Take See care, man. Al. See ya. Thanks, guys. See you, Don. All right, I am fired up to announce the next collaboration with Aries Watch Company right here, handmade in the USA. This one right here has illuminated cross tomahawks. The date, the back here has the cross tomahawks and see, car mod 2001. Awesome. And comes in this new Pelican case right here. Follow along at Jack Carr USA on the social channels to find out when this drops. Once they're gone, they are gone forever, at least this model. So once it drops, go to officialjackcar.com, click on shop in the upper right-hand corner and pick yours up. The last one sold out immediately. So if you want one, you're going to have to get on it pretty quick. Thanks so much for everything. Take care out there. Nice. So, uh, so what is your recollection of Red Wings then? Yeah, it's kind of similar in that, uh, like I said, it was a conventional mission and, uh, I had no part in it at all. As a matter of fact, what we did because our, so it was two different kinds of Chinooks, right? The MH 47 echo, which I was flying. It's a much more technologically superior aircraft than the, what the third battalion was flying. But the difference is that equipment weighs as weight. Right, mm-hmm. and you're up in the mountains, 12,000, 13,000 feet. So they decided that in order to lift more Marines, the third battalion guys would do that. Now, we had our own QRF that lasted a week at a time, and they decided to change over early uh, to my two aircraft, which I was the flight lead of, and then Major uh, Reich and Corey Goodnature were the third battalion guys with the aircraft that could lift more but they can't do as much like in the bad weather, you know, kind of stuff. But the weather for uh, Red Wings had to be good anyway, because you had to have all these overhead assets and A-10s and all this other stuff. So that was the aircraft to use. So we did a, we were going to switch over early QRF duties. And uh, I got up the morning of the, so that night uh, they, they put the, I can't remember the date. They, uh, they put the four seals in, right. Uh, and they uh, were compromised the next morning. And uh, the, I walked into the planning area, got my coffee. Everybody's focused on the big, you know, TV screens. I sat down next to the battalion commander and I said, "Hey, sir, what's uh, what's going on?" And he goes, "Oh, the seals have been compromised. We're going to exfil them." I go, "Well, that would be me. I'm the QRF right now." He goes, "Uh, you know, Major Reich was already up, so he took his aircraft to go get him. Plus, he's already familiar with the area because he was getting ready to do Red Wings." It's like, oh, okay. So I'm drinking my coffee, watching the uh, Turbine 3-3 come in, and uh, you could see the explosion from the RPG in the, toward the back inside of the aircraft. And they kind of limp away, and then the aircraft, that you know, there's a forward and aft rotor head that are synchronized to a transmission uh, drive shaft, and that was sheared, obviously, by the explosion, and the blades just kind of hit, and the aircraft just sort of collapsed onto the mountain. And... Uh, so I, I looked over at the colonel and I said, sir, I can be in the air in, you know, 20 minutes. He said, go. So now I had our SEALs, which the Debgrew guys, uh, I think it was Red Squadron at the time, 
jump in the back and uh, we haul ass down there and, and I don't even know what we're going to do when we get there, you know, uh, because there's only one place to, not even one place to land. It's going to have to be fast rope, probably the same thing. So I'm, I'm looking at my map, just trying to figure out where can I go that's not the same place. Because that's the one thing I learned out of Anaconda was that, uh, you know, in Vietnam, they would just throw aircraft at a downed aircraft mm. scenario, right? So someone gets shot down, you just keep throwing Hueys at it. They get shot down, so what? You got more, right? Or the, or the crew would even sometimes get picked up, go back, get another helicopter, and come back again. Wow. But we didn't have that number of aircraft. So I learned you got to, you know, there's a reason they got shot down. That reason is probably still there. And they now know that we're going to come. So mm -hmm. now they have the big advantage. Uh, the terrain there was very canalized, uh, channelized, right? You had like three ways in. There was... One way was always cloud shrouded. So you really had two ways in and the bad guys knew it, you know, or at least I had to assume they did. And, uh, I got diverted about five minutes out. I got told to go to J bad. We're going to come up with a different plan. Mm. Okay. So I go over there and what it was is the, the dev group guys at that compound wanted to be included in the infill, you know, so we had more shooters. And, uh, what they didn't realize is that, you know, it's 12,500 feet. I had 18 seals on board, I think. And, uh, based on my fuel load, that was about it, mm. you know? So adding seals was not going to, just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Uh, although they ended up doing that the next day <laughs> and I dumped fuel on the way oh, there. Wow. Uh, so I was able to, to get them up there, but, uh, yeah. So it was, uh, and, Oh, and so, you know, when, what, uh, Don didn't get to say is he's trying to catch them. You know, so the Turbine 33, you know, is a flight of two, and they've got the Siege of Soda Seals on board. And they are hauling ass. They're doing about 150, which is, is fast for a Chinook in the mountains. And they're going uphill. And the Apaches are trying to catch them. And they're like, hey, the Apaches, uh, here we are. Would you like some support? And he goes, can you catch me? And they go, not unless you slow down. And he's like, well, you just keep coming. I'm going to start putting my guys in. And Really, there's not much the Apaches could have done. You know, same thing I said about the daps, you know, on my wing. It's like you're more of a revenge weapon mm. you know, because uh, if you show up ahead of time, you can't shoot at anybody anyway because of the rules of engagement. And if they start shooting, well, they'll shoot at you, but now I can't do my mission. And we're always trying to get the customer in, you know, the assault force. Wow. Whoever they are. Incredible. Yeah. And then do you go, are you a part of the recovery of, uh, um, the team of Marcus was so that part of it? Yeah. As well? So the uh, so the next two weeks, uh, we called it Operation Earned Respect. I don't think that was the official name, but that's what we were uh, labeling it as. And so every night we would launch, we'd have a window of opportunity of time, right? Because you had to do it in the cover of darkness, and there were thunderstorms every night. So you had about forty five minutes at a time where you could fly mm -hmm. uh, because even with the radar, you, the rain was so dense. It was those summer rainstorms there in, in that Valley and you couldn't see. And uh, there were a couple of times I didn't think I was going to survive, <laughs> survive the night. You know, the weather was so bad. You had mountains, you know, up on either side of you. And all we would do is you had a digital map right in the, the display. And you had these little dots, we call them tr trend dots, right? Mm -hmm. And as you move, the dots could turn with whatever the aircraft was trending. And so you'd kind of come to a hover on the little video game, if you will. You put the trend dots on the map and you'd fly the low ground 
with these little dots. It was not intended for that. Wow. And that's how we were getting in and out. And the older Chinooks couldn't do that. They didn't have that same equipment. So there was only two of us that could do it. And the other guys, you know, would, would hang with us as long as they could, you know, but that's probably the toughest flying I did. And then we slowly started, you know, finding bodies. And then uh, we were actually practicing for what we call a dignified transfer where they send the, the bodies of those killed back to, you know, to Dover for uh, processing but it's a very dignified procedure. You have caskets and you bring them up to the C-17 and they, and they go, it's a big ceremony. And while we were rehearsing for that, because one of my good friends, my non-commissioned officer, Trey Ponder, uh, was on that aircraft. And uh, the officer in charge comes out and he's like, Al, uh, come with me right now. We've got a survivor. I was like, what? And this was Marcus. And so... Uh, so I didn't get to participate in the dignified transfer. We ended up planning for Latrell's rescue. And, uh, you know, an SF ODA had got to him first and secured him, you know, but that secure was kind of a tenuous because they were surrounded by Taliban. And uh, I actually got, I never met the guy. I'm actually going to meet him in a couple of weeks, the ODA uh, uh, commander. No but um, yeah, so the Air Force, it was, it was interesting because it was one of those things you always want to be the guy to do yeah. it right and that's what we do and i remember the the pj that was in charge a guy named tom he says all right the hh60 is going to go pick him up and uh and i i stopped him i was like no way is the air force going in to get this guy our guys died you know trying to get him i will go get him and they the problem was we still had people missing right i mean you had the, the KIAs when you still had radio beacons going off in places that the Taliban had taken. We didn't know if they were friendlies or or what. So we were continuing to bring SEALs and Rangers in to LZ Thresher, which was uh, where they got shot down. And so with this window of weather, right, this timing, the guy said, all right, Al, you can go get them. But we still need to bring Rangers in. But if you do that, you use the weather window and the 60s obviously can't bring 20 guys up to the top of the hill. And 40, really, with two Chinooks. And uh, I thought about it for a minute. I was like, all right, good point. Uh, they can pick them up, but I'm planning the whole mission. And the Air Force guys were like, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Because I'd already been up there, you know, every day, a couple times a day. Wow. So I planned the whole, the fires mission, the the ingress, egress, the timing of the last round in the air from the AC-130. Uh, we had a, a program called Top Scene, which is a lot like Google Earth nowadays, you know, and uh, you could fly the terrain, you know, on a computer. And I was like, all right, here's what you're going to see. You're going to come in here. You're going to do this. In the 60s, they stripped those things down. They had no guns, no protective gear, nothing, because wow. they didn't really have the performance mm -hmm. to go get them. And, uh, you know, they, so those guys, you know, big, big balls. Um but, you know, it was interesting because the, you know, I went and I talked to the AC-130 guys and the A-10 guys, which is the first time I'd ever actually done that, you know, sat down with them and said, all right, look, here's my map. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. How can you help me? Mm -hmm. Right. So instead of just telling them, here's what I want, it's like, maybe here's what I want, but what do you think? You know, like I wanted 105 rounds on some of the key terrain and the AC was like, no, no, no you want uh, 40 millimeter. He says, that'll, that'll do what you're doing. If his guy's undercover, like canvas cover, you know, trying to fool ISR, he goes, that'll be much more effective. We can lay down a lot more fire with 40 millimeter versus, you know, 105. And I was like, wow, okay, do that. You know? mm -hmm. 
And the same thing with the A-10s, you know, I, I wanted the A-10s really to do diversionary fire. So as the AC would shoot and then they'd shift fire so the Blackhawk could come through and then they'd fill in behind them. While that's occurring, I wanted the A-10 to drop and the most visually impressive piece of terrain, I wanted just big ball of flame, you know, so that if someone's looking, you know, at the primary egress route, they'll look over here for a minute and go, oh, look at that. That's yeah. really cool. And then by the time they look back, the, the AC is back to pummeling, you know, the stuff. And, and that was, in, in all my time flying, especially in the 160th, that is probably my biggest artwork, if you will, okay. is that rescue. Jeez, incredible. Incredible. What do you do from there? You go back, you go to Iraq, you're going back and forth Iraq and Afghanistan for the, yeah, I mean, when did you, when did you retire? When did you, when did you get out? I yeah. I, I tried to stay in Afghanistan because I had it pretty much memorized. Yeah. And I, and I was really comfortable there. Okay. And Iraq was something new. Yeah. And uh, eventually, you know, I had to go to Iraq. I started at Al-Assad and then over to Balad, mm. worked out at the MSS in, the, uh, in Baghdad. But uh, then I loved Iraq. Iraq was so easy. There was no <laughs> dust. I mean, all the landings were, you know, to palm groves and, you know, along the river, you know, the yeah. creeks and canals. So it was actually pretty pleasant flying, <laughs> you know, for, for me. Okay. Uh, and then I get went back to Afghanistan once, uh, you know, the Iraq stuff started to collapse. And then mm. um, you just kept, kept doing it. Jeez. What year did you get out? One thing after another. Yeah. What year did you get out? Uh, so I got out in 16. Okay. Me right? too. So I ended up, unfortunately, you know, the, the title of the book, Razors Are Three, A Night Stalker's Wars. The wars are, you know, the Gulf War, the Global War on Terror, and the war against my wife's prescription opioid addiction. Yeah. So that wife of 26 years, unfortunately, uh, overdosed and uh, passed away while I was there at Campbell. And the regiment was great. You know, they they offered me all kinds of opportunities to do some things and to you know deal with it in my own way and i decided you know what uh i need something different and it just so happened that the next month i went to new york city to unveil the horse soldier statue at ground zero mm. and i said you know there's a job at west point open for the commander's position of the flight detachment you know they want a cw5 uh i'll put my name in a hat and i I went up and interviewed for the job with the superintendent. He liked me. I got the job. And uh, so I stayed there for three years, met my current wife, uh, who's from the New York area. She lost her brother in the uh, uh, stepbrother in the North Tower. So we had this connection right from the beginning. And uh, when the Army decided to send me back to the community, you know, they were like, well, I don't know. They're not going to take me back at the 160. They're trying to get rid of all the W5s. There's too many of us. And uh, they said, well, well, you go to Bragg. I was going to be General Cleveland's, um, or I was in the running to be General Cleveland's senior warrant officer. So he was the USASOC okay. man. And uh, my sons talked me out of it. They said, uh, you're going to take, you know, Patty out of New York, where she's never really left the Northeast. You're going to take her to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, you know, Fayetteville. <laughs> and then you're going to be gone all the time. And yeah. I said, no, 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 I'll be the... I'll be working with the general, you know, and he gets, and what do you think he's doing all the time? Right. He's out visiting troops, right? So I met the guy that took the job uh, about a year later. And uh, I said, well, do, you, do you like the job? And he said, oh, I love it. I said, is there a downside? And he goes, yeah, I'm never home. My wife hates it. <laughs> and they're like, ooh, I dodged yeah. a bullet there, you know? So uh, when it came, so I just retired and stayed here in uh, Orange County, uh, New York. And uh, uh, I actually worked for the county executive as the deputy commissioner of emergency services. Oh, wow. 
So I still do, you know, it's, you know, I'd say it's almost like working in JSOC. You, know, you yeah. get the police officers, the EMS, the firefighters, they all kind of hate each other, you know, <laughs> on a daily basis. Something happens, they all go do their thing together, then they drink beer, then they go back and eat each other. Uh, oh, man, that's wild. Yeah, the the personal stuff in here is just, I mean, it, it's heartbreaking. I get people that read this will be uh, you know, surprised that it's that it's in there, uh, considering the cover and your, your background, yeah. but it'll help so many people that are dealing with uh, with situations that are, uh, that are difficult to, to deal with. Um, how was West Point? How did you like, uh, like it up there? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. You know, uh, Beautiful spot. I mean, maybe not if you're a student, but if you go there, it is a be- The architecture is just, I mean, it's just yeah. so stark and imposing in that location and that history. Um, I went up there to give a, a talk at, uh, what is Eisenhower Hall? Is that the big one? Yeah. Uh, yep. I gave a talk after Najaf. So in January or early February, maybe of 2004 and talking about special operations support, um, to conventional units. Um, and, uh, it was awesome. I mean, they showed me how they feed all those, all the students, how they uh, get all that food in and out. I forget like two different rotate. I forget exactly. 4, but students yeah, something like that. Yeah. It was crazy. Um, but did the tour and all that stuff went to the museum, which at the time I think was right off post. And now I yep. think the perimeter has been pushed a little bit. So maybe it's on now and now or something anyway. Yeah, still off, but okay. Still off. Yeah. So right there, yeah, amazing museum. Floors. Yeah. Incredible. I spent a lot of time in there. Um, and they went out that night and, uh, and, uh, went to the bars down. I don't know if it's called downtown or not. I don't know, but it's a yeah. beautiful spot. But if you're a yeah. student there in January, February in particular, uh, maybe yeah. you don't, you're not thinking of it as beautiful, but it, but I'll it, tell it you, is. You know, Jack, the, uh, so here I am, you know, after 10 years of, war being involved in all of the key aspects of it you know and now my wife dies and i'm going to go off and do a a conventional assignment and i remember thinking this is going to suck i really want to be doing it because i really miss the guys Mm -hmm. i mean i I bet you feel the same way you know it's the it's the people that you work with more more so even in the mission that that really make it worth doing and so here i am at west point you know doing this you know flying the superintendent around and then my very first mission is actually drop and cadet the parachute team. So we fly over for the season opening safety brief. Mm. I fly over my little UH-72 Lakota. I get out and two cadets, firsties, uh, seniors, uh, stop me and like, hey, sir, uh, we heard all about you. We want you to be our leadership mentor. And he's like, "Uh, sure. (laughs) And and they run off, right? And then we do the safety brief and we're flying. I'm like, hey, what did I sign up for? And my co-positive, fuck, I don't know. so it turns out what you do is you you mentor them, you give them advice on how to deal with platoon sergeants and uh, warrant officers in particular mm-hmm. if they're going to be in aviation, and you know how did you deal with this or that in with your personal life or your your men, you know how their families you know dependents and stuff like that, or how did you deal with you know loss of friends that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and in return they convinced me to go skydiving and uh, they actually taught me. Uh, how to skydive got licensed. No kidding. Uh, and it kind of was a, their attitude was just so amazing. Actually, those two guys are both in the 160th now flying Wow. Wow. And, uh, Gosh. You know, it's, it's amazing. Gosh, it seems like a long path when you're just starting out and you're just graduating high school or maybe you're mid-college, uh, but man, it's not. It goes quick. And uh, really, I mean, yeah. so I did 35 years, 11 months. Jeez. And I would have stayed longer had they not tried to move me, I would have stayed till 40, you wow. know, cause I loved it. I was, yeah. I really enjoyed it. And quite frankly, the higher you go up in rank, the easier life is anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 
It's not like you're an E2, E3 the whole you know, 30 years. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Well, thank you for writing this. I mean, I'm going to save some things. You talk about uh, Bo Bergdahl in here, your thoughts on that. Um, there's a bunch of other things you talk about, but I want people to get it. Um, so Razor 03 right here, definitely pick this book up. Um, not just if you're thinking about Army aviation, but uh, but anybody that's interested in that, that history uh, or uh, adversity and how you overcame some of these things. And uh, it's just it's just amazing. But I did want to ask you, what, where you where you were in uh, August of 2021 when you're watching uh, our withdrawal from Afghanistan and what your your thoughts were on that? You know, I mean, the first thing that really happened was uh, I saw an article where they were leaving Bagram, right, Bagram Air Base, and I remember posting on LinkedIn uh, just all I posted that article and I just said, I don't know how I feel about this, but this can't be right, mm. and because we took that first for a reason it is yeah. the place to go you can you can secure it it's got two huge runways in infrastructure right kabul is this crappy little airport there's a reason we didn't take it as our initial staging base and uh you know as a special operations flight lead one of the things that i specialize in is obviously planning and i planned a lot of what we call neos non-combatant evacuation orders whether it was in Africa or Europe uh, or, or Asia, you know, some of the basic tenets of that are, they just totally ignored, you know, and I don't know who the hell planned that mission, uh, the withdrawal, but it was all backwards. Ridiculous. It's like, Hey, let's give up all the good secure areas and let's not get these other people out before we, you know, the military should be the last ones there and not, you know, leaving civilians behind. Yeah. And once again, no accountability. For anything that well, uh, that happened there, it's uh, well, and that's something I'm hoping. Uh, so my, I just got a contract right now for uh, the second book, which uh, I got a lot more stories. Those just happened to be a lot of the ones that were made the news. I thought would get some attention. I was like, oh, here's my perspective on these. Yeah. Well, I've got some other ones that are actually even cooler, uh, and I asked for permission from USASOC. We'll see if they give it to me uh, to talk to the crew. There was a Chinook crew there at the very, very end. Oh, wow. That was uh, doing some things. And they said they agreed in principle. We'll see if they actually let me. Oh, uh, I will be shocked like, if you get. Uh, you know, well, you know how the DOD <laughs> talks. Man, I, my book was there for nine months and uh, they oh. redacted some interesting things. Oh, geez. They should not have redacted. It's ridiculous. Uh, it's so overclassified. It's just ridiculous. But um, that whole process and antiquated. Um, because those generals and admirals can go on like CBS the, this morning or, you know, MSNBC or whatever, spout off whatever they want to say with no checks on what they're going to say. And their book is, if they yeah. do a book, it's done in a week. And, it, and they, uh, their book's done a lot quicker than ours. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. So there's no, they don't even have the, the time to put into their thought like you do in a book to think maybe I shouldn't say, maybe I should, but yet no problem going on MSNBC and spouting off with no check. But if you want to write it down, even though what you say is out there forever, just like a book is out there forever, uh, right. no check. It's just, it's and, just crazy. You know, what's funny is I, I, yeah, I took the high road throughout that book. I, I've had some friends have read it and they're like, Al, you didn't, you didn't do say this or that or whatever, you know, I might've had a run in with somebody, you know, right. And it's like, it, it doesn't affect the story and there's no reason to, to, you know, tear that guy up right? You know, or, or this organization. 
there's just no reason. You know, I can tell the story without doing that. Right. You know? That's why writing fiction is so therapeutic because I can just take the the feelings and emotions behind a run in like that and not yeah. name names because it's fiction uh, or it's attached yeah. to different names. And sometimes the backgrounds might be a little similar. Yeah. So the guys reading it can be like, yeah, awesome. But it wouldn't really make sense to anyone else that it wasn't involved in any of that stuff. But I find yeah. it very therapeutic because if those per- people read it, they'll know. Um, yeah. But so I do have, I'm also <laughs> working on a thriller. Nice. As well. Oh, it's, wow. It's so you really like the writing then? I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. And so, you know, that's why I was saying, you know, being on here with you and Don, you know, it's like, I could just sit here and drink and just <laughs> listen to you guys, you know, oh. and, uh, like I was hoping to come down to Thriller Fest, but because uh, I'm just an hour up the road, but uh, I think I'm going to be working, unfortunately. I get my day job. Oh, there you go. There you go. Well, if you can ever make it to Thriller Fest and BoucherCon is the other one. Um, Thriller Fest probably is the one that I would well, at, both are valuable for different reasons, um, but a uh, great way to, to meet agents and publishers and other authors for future blurbs and all the rest of it just makes sense to you know be around that uh, the industry that you uh, are now working in or want to do other things in. Um, it just doesn't doesn't hurt to be at those those places. I'll be there this year um, at Thriller Fest. I think it's the end of end of May, but I'll get there for the weekend that's in June. So it's like June yeah, you're the second or third. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's pretty cool. They of course they asked me like two years ago and I said, Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and then as we got closer here, I'm like, Oh, wait a second. What's the date of my daughter's high school graduation? And when's this? Uh, and I'm like, Oh no. And so I take a red eye out Friday night after the graduation and, uh, uh, get there at like six 30 in the morning or something like that, which is interesting. Cause the last time I went, uh, same thing, I was in Africa and we flew back a day early just so I could go and flew back from Africa. And, uh, I think we were in, we were in coach. And so it was not the greatest flight, uh, and then land and then right to thriller fest all day. So essentially, you know, yeah. and that's back when the all nighters were easier. All right. For whatever reason, yeah. like I said at the beginning, yeah, yeah. they're a little harder now. Oh yeah. yeah I, I remember just days and days with no sleep, you know, and it yeah. was really, you were tired, but it wasn't that big a deal. Now right. I do it. And I'm like loopy. Yeah, exactly. It's a little different. Why is that? Um, <laughs> what uh, what can you tell me about the the thriller? Uh, well, um, it you know what's interesting. It it actually has a group uh, that I based on the Wagner organization. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So I I actually wrote the book um, before I wrote Razor Zero Three, but I couldn't get any traction on it. And you know, now that I've written this one, I kind of uh-huh. know what I did wrong. So I'm reimagining it. Okay, telling it. It was told. Uh, much like the Matt Drake book okay. you know, from first person. So now I'm changing it to multi POVs, but it's really got this Wagner group and some cold war nuclear weapons and nice. uh, some, uh, you know, some, uh, some Chinooks that are off the books. Yeah. And they get some, some shooters and, you know, a lot of fun. Oh, so fantastic. I can't get that thing rolling. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm looking forward to, to reading it and give it a blurb when the, uh, when the time is right. So just, uh, just let good. me know. Can't wait to, to read it. Can't wait to read your second one. When does the second, um, nonfiction come out? Uh, well, it's, uh, I just got the contract today. Oh, today. So, wow. Uh, we got, we've got, uh, April of next year is the, is the plan. Oh, great. Okay. Well, that's still pretty quick. Oh, that's for the April next year for the manuscript to be done. Oh, got it. Okay. Got it. I was going to say, well, that's pretty quick. You better get on it yeah. after this. Uh, yeah. yeah. The nonfiction that I'm working on right now with an amazing historian, uh, and Pulitzer prize finalist, James Scott, we're writing a book about the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing. And it's, oh, I yeah. thought it was going to be a year process. It's a two year process now that I'm, yeah. and if you want to, for, for me and for this subject matter, which we obviously want to treat with the utmost respect uh, and put so much thought into it. Um, uh, it, it's a two year 
thing. So uh, I'm going to have a nonfiction that's going to be on a two-year cycle rather than the one-year cycle I envisioned at the outset. Um, you can do it, but it, yeah, but to do it justice, especially these things, um, you yeah. know, you, you got to put that time in. So it's a it's a two-year two-year deal. So, um, so yeah, this, so this will be coming out then if you turn it in, in April, it'll be coming out six months later, eight months later, something like that. Yeah, I think they're close to like a year, I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Well, I can't wait to read you know, it. It's funny. I just, I just finished narrating the audiobook for Razor Zero Three. Oh, what did you think about doing the audiobook? How is, how is um, that? Well, for me, it was a big learning curve because my publisher is actually in the UK. Right? Oh, wow. So they're like, all right. Uh, Who's your publisher? Uh, pen, pen and, and sword. sword. Ooh, I like the I like the symbol. Nice, very yeah. cool. So they're like a uh, you know a military history publisher, really. Okay. And um, it was funny because I said, "Well, will the narrator have a British accent?" They <laughs> and they're said, like, "Oh, the narrator yeah, will be you." It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they said, "Well, I'll tell you what, why don't you do it? You know, and uh, you know, just turn it into us, and we'll we'll edit it, and we'll do all that stuff. But you narrate it." So I was like, "All right." So I had to learn how to do it. You know, I mean, I could have hired, you know, a studio or something, but what I went on YouTube and just watched video after video after video on how to do it, I got, you know, uh, Adobe Audition, wow. some nice headsets, a microphone, okay. and uh, did it here at the house, which was a challenge. Uh, so I essentially had to learn how to do it. Then I had to learn how to edit it. Wow. Right? Dang. And so I was really pleased with the end product and they'll, obviously they'll clean it up even a little bit more, but it's, you know, I gave it to them. I said, Hey, look, you could use this as it is you could just like right now i could upload this to uh to audible you know to acx they said uh they, they listen to it they're like ah, we'll clean up just a little bit I'm like all right fine but they're talking like this summer you know uh, mm -hmm. is the lead time on that but i would do it again for a non-fiction uh for a fiction book i don't think i would because i'm not creative enough you know yeah. in, the, in the voices oh yeah the accents and all that stuff i turn that over to professionals for yeah. sure um, right. I mean, they're actors, you know, uh, and, and it, yeah. it's amazing. So how long is the audiobook for this? Um, I think it's uh, nine hours and 28 minutes. Yeah. So how long did it take you then to get to that nine hours and 20 minutes? How much? It took about three weeks. So how many hours do you think that was? Like 20? Oh, geez. Uh, probably, well, at least three times that. Three times. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Got had to it. be 50. Like I would say that if, if I had to do it again, I it would probably, t I would take a week off of work because I had to do this. I'd come home for lunch and I'd come home at dinner and I would. Oh my do, gosh. You know, and, you know, an hour at lunch and, you know, probably three hours a night. And then what I also learned was I was recording a chapter and then I'd clean it up. You know, I'd yeah. delete the outtakes and, okay. and, and do that and then uh, normalize the audio and all that kind of stuff. And I realized oh. just do it and then go back. Okay. It, you know, yeah. and uh, then oh. it was a much quicker process, but it, was, it was interesting. It was that fun. Is I, wild. I will do the next book as well. Really? Oh my, I mean, I like that, that you read it, um, but maybe the editing part, like, whew, I would for sure yeah. outsource, outsource that, but you seem very technically oriented and able to, well, to do that. What was, though, is that. You know, I knew when I kind of met, you know, I would uh, do a little mouth click or something. So it would spike on the, on the O-scope, but yeah. you know, I might know that, I, I did that which version I really wanted. You know, it's like, oh, I, I really like that one. Uh, and I didn't want somebody else picking. It. You know how, you know, guys will okay. you listen to an audio book and, and somebody will say, you know, the CJTF, you know, right, CJOTF. Right. And it's like uh, CJ Sotov. Right. Just 
That's yeah, tough. Yeah. That's tough. I try to remember to let uh, my narrator know some of those things, but I miss some every now and again. And you have uh, NODs, you know, instead of nods right. or, or whatever. Right. And it's just, you know, it's right. just kind of how it goes. But I'll, all I did was read the uh, a new forward to the terminal list for the Chris Pratt cover yeah. edition that talks about how the show came to be and everything. So yeah. it's like five pages, maybe, maybe six. And I did the same thing. I recorded it and I went into a closet and put, uh, I had, had a bunch of clothes hanging in there to absorb some of the sound and ran a, a thing under and Simon and Schuster, the director out there said it was, it sounded great. So I read it. It was very difficult to read six pages. That's, uh, I mean, it's not even, there's no like, emotion. There's no, I mean, it's just talking about how this thing came to be. Um, and, uh, talking about all the veterans that were involved in production at all the different stages and that sort of a thing. And just really thanking people. And it was very difficult to read that forward. And I always knew it was difficult to read an audiobook, but I have, uh, now uh, new respect for everybody that does it, especially someone who is doing it for the first time, like you did with, uh, with this. So, um, absolutely. So well done. Well done. Thanks. Ugh incredible um man thank you for taking the time today and what's the new book called does it have a title yet or is it a or is it a working uh, title the working title is uh chinooks in the dark got it and uh, nice. i didn't pick that i had some other thing in mind but we'll see i maybe i'm gonna see if i can sway him more to like black chinooks uh something or other got it but, uh, yeah so it'll be some of my exploits uh there won't be you know the family drama in it uh, but I've got a couple of other guys who I have talked to uh, and interviewed to put their stories in it because it melts nicely, uh, like Mount Hope 3. So when they flew the Chinook into Africa back in the uh, 80s and they oh, stole wow. a hind. Yes. I love uh, it. Amazing. So there's a, lot, there's a lot to that story that nobody knows about. Like I had wow. heard about it. So I, I talked to you know one of the pilots that was the flight lead. I talked to the general that was, wow. was on board. And uh, it's just an amazing story. And yeah. I just talked, it was a hostage rescue in Iraq uh, called Zamari 241. I think it was mm. that uh, was, was a big shoot 'em up. And uh, my buddy Cal gave me the details on that. I'm going to throw that in there along with some of my stuff. Amazing. So it should be a good, good, quick, fun read. Cool. Uh, you know, I also wanted to highlight some of the guys, you always read these books and you, you either, it's either the shooters or the pilots. But you never get to hear about the crew chiefs or the the flight medics. You know the the 160th flight medics are legendary in the community. You know we did so many Kazavaks where you know they saved people's lives mm -hmm. that probably wouldn't have, they wouldn't have made it if it weren't for them. And so I want to include some of that you yeah. know in here because there's some really good stories. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to, to reading that and uh, hopefully we can sit back down again, maybe in person and, uh, and talk about those and that book when it's, yeah, we'll uh, when drink it some out. of your whiskey there. <laughs> there well, there's enough. I think they'll still, <laughs> hopefully there's still some here. Uh, but uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Man, man, thank you so much for all that time that uh, you gave the country. I mean, at the highest levels of special operations going back time and time again, um, it's an inspiration to, to me and so many others. And I hope people pick up this book and have it. They'll have a newfound appreciation for uh, what you don't hear so much about, but getting to and from the target and putting fires on target and uh, uh, really, you know, being the saviors of those guys that are on the ground. So, um, so thank you for everything. Thank you. Thanks for your service. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, hopefully I'll be seeing you in person soon. All right. All right. Cool. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. Danger Close is presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. 
Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union could help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you can start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit like $50 for an easy start certificate. Add money at any time and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal's savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. If you're saving for a down payment on a new car, you may need an auto loan at a great rate. Navy Federal is there too. Applying is easy. You can do all of it on their mobile app, online, or by phone. And it's so fast, you can get a decision in seconds. Plus, with their car buying service powered by TrueCar, you can shop, compare, and get upfront pricing on your next new or used car. Find out more at NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, open to armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. Credit and collateral subject for approval, rates subject to change, and are based on credit worthiness. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply. Today's episode is also brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Grab a can of Black Rifle Coffee's ready-to-drink, the perfect balance of quality and convenience. If you want a Spartan-level caffeine kick, try Ready to Drink 300, available in salted caramel, vanilla bomb, and more. Made with an electrifying blend of MCT oil and amino acids, Ready to Drink 300 packs a caffeine punch that'll supercharge your day. Ready to Drink is perfect if you need your coffee quick, and shopping with Black Rifle Coffee helps give back to the veterans and first responders who serve our nation. You can stock up on cans at blackriflecoffee.com or grab an ice-cold can at a convenience store near you. You can stock up at blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash DangerClose for 20% off. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. There's a few very cool things to go over today. I'm going to start right here with this Wesley Richards Sutherland bag. So this bag, amazing. Go to WesleyRichards.com. Sutherland bag right here. Have this camo. Look what they did for me. I'm not sure if you can see it on the video right there. Can you see that? They put cross tomahawks on there for me. That is amazing. And uh, if you're a gun person, you may have recognized Wesley Richards from my second novel, True Believer. They have been making guns for over 200 years continuously in the UK. Check out their history, check out their amazing rifles and their lifestyle collection as well. Thank you guys for sending me this book. This book, coffee table book right here, I love it. So thank you so much. Um, and that uh, Stephen Humphreys at Wesley Richards, really appreciate you guys taking the time to do this. So everybody else, go to wesleyrichards.com and uh, W-E-S-T-L-E-Y-R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S.com. Check out the history, check out the guns, check out the lifestyle line right here and this catalog i'm going to be ordering a few things so very cool it's gonna might have to show up in another novel 
as well. They also have the Explora Club, and you can go to wesleyrichards.com slash E-X-P-L-O-R-A-C-L-U-B to check that out as well. So thank you guys. Very cool. Means, uh, means so much to me. And this bag, I've never seen a bag as well put together as this. That is some classic craftsmanship right there. Thank you. Uh, all right. This right here was a surprise gift. Herman at Ashter Knives, A-C-H-T-E-R Knives. And look at this. This right here, coffee grinder. But this one right here is from 1952, German-made for the Dutch market right here. And uh, Herman, thank you so much for the cards and the history uh, and the thought that went into this. And you even got Brian over at a Rough Cut Woodworks to make this backing right there. And if you can see that, got the cross tomahawks on there as well. Thank you, guys. I absolutely love this. Going to have to find a great spot for it, and I uh, can't wait to start making some coffee with it. And this was like a full-service box because coffee came with it, too, from Red Clover Coffee, and that's redclovercoffee.com. This one right here and the Kilimanjaro journey right here <sighs> smells delicious. And the bourbon whiskey, Wow. This thing smells great. I'm going to go make some bourbon whiskey coffee right after this podcast. So very cool, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, once again, Herman Ashter Knives, A-C-H-T-E-R, uh, and Brian at a Rough Cut Woodworks. And uh, this is one of Herman's blades right here. This is a little hatchet. Look at that. EDC hatchet right there. But check out his website. It has uh, knives, hatchets on there, and uh, just an amazing guy. So Check that out for sure. And what's this? Yeah, that's a dog bowl right there. This is Scout's favorite new dog bowl and made by Yeti. This thing is indestructible. Good weapon, too, if you need it to be. You can go to officialjackcar.com, click in on shop in the upper right-hand corner to check out merch to include the dog bowl. And this right here, Only the Dead. This is a galley copy. Hardcovers are inbound. So depending on when you're seeing this, May 16th, Only the Dead will be on shelves. Ebook, audiobook, and hardcover. So May 16th, Only the Dead, coming in hot. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves May 16th. Ebook, audiobook, and hardcover. It is available for pre order right now. To find out more about Don Bentley, go to Hib's website. That is Don Bentley Books, D O N B E N T L E Y Books.com. You can follow him on the social channels from there. And to find out more about Alan Mack, go to his website, AlanCMack.com, A L A N C M A C K.com. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. Click in the upper right-hand corner on shop for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.